listening to the Northern Hunter Podcast, home of all things hunting, fishing, and outdoors in Alaska. All right, everybody, welcome back to the show. My name is James Payne. I'm Dalton Gray. And we have the great pleasure of sitting here and speaking with uh, author, hunt video producer, and podcast host, Jeff Lund. How are you doing today, man? Good. Thank you uh, very much for having you on. Appreciate the, or having me on. I appreciate yeah. your time. <laughs> yeah. Well, I appreciate you uh, you hanging in there with us and uh, and coming on the show and uh, being willing to share your insights and everything with us. So, um, for those of you listeners that noticed, uh, Mo is not here with us today. So he uh, got himself a little bit uh, double booked this week mm-hmm. and uh, was unable to make it due to some scheduling. But he is uh, yeah. out there doing good work. He's helping helping the Utes. Mm-hmm. So uh, he's we wish him the best. Hope he's having a good time. And uh, yep. we're gonna. I pushed the red button today, so we're going to see how this plays out. Uh, there might be a little bit of choppiness, so <laughs> hopefully not, but uh, we're going to try to push through this. So yeah, Try to survive. Yep. And today we're going to be talking about the first thing, first ungulate to open up in the state of Alaska, which is deer hunting. Yes. Um, Alaska's uh, native species, the Sitka black-tailed deer, uh, opens up. We're going to talk a little bit about that, a little bit about Southeast, and... Uh, just thank you so much for bringing on your uh, your expertise there. Um, I, I don't I don't know if I would call it expertise. My podcast was called the Mediocre. Alaska, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> you, you know, I, was, I, I do I do have some experiences, some observations <laughs> I can share. Perfect, perfect. You know, I, I was curious about that. What what is what is the backstory to the Mediocre Alaskan? That's that's a very interesting name. <laughs> it was, uh, I started it in 2017, so it was a while ago, um, and it was kind of a kind of a joke towards people who are in this competition to be like the best Alaskan where like, I am, I'm better than you or, mm. you know, someone who's coming up to Alaska and comes here for a week and has this idea that they conquered Alaska. I'm like, whatever, man, just to, just to be up here. Yeah. And I'm just going to give you a standard look at what an ordinary life in Alaska is. And that's going to involve hunting. That's going to involve fishing. That's going to mm-hmm. involve dealing with horrible weather and, and misery and all that. So, um, it was just kind of a humble sort of, I'm not going to try to amplify anything ordinary person. Yeah. Um, I changed it, uh, because <laughs> the last couple of years have just been, it's been an intolerable sort of advocacy for mediocrity and, and not, not being, not growing, uh, as a person, not challenging yourself. And, mm. um, especially as a teacher, just really hard to, to stomach that attitude and that, that, that lack of inspiration or that lack of, of championing that, uh, kind of bothered me. And so I thought about changing it a couple of times, but finally just changed mm-hmm. it. So there's no mistaking it. And, mm-hmm. um, my wife actually had uh, a mediocre Alaskan sticker on a fly rod. And, uh, <laughs> someone said, uh, what's with you millennials and being mediocre. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> that, that's not, but then you're, you're not going to be able to explain. Well, my husband's heard the podcast 2017. So you started out as the mediocre Alaskan podcast. What is the name now, Jeff? On step Alaska. On step Alaska. Alaska. South, Southeast Alaska. We talk about on step, you know, and obviously in the, mm-hmm. in boating terms. Yeah. Uh, also when people get rolling with storytelling or, uh, yeah. You know, things like that, or you're just, you're feeling it, you're feeling it, you know, yeah, you're, you're right. in the group, you're, you're, you're vibing, it's all good, you're on step. So, yeah. uh, a more positive 
Right. Uh, I yeah. Guess, uh, <laughs> yes. I, I do like the the updated name, and um, I would like to say, you know, it's probably because you're not you're not so mediocre anymore. So <laughs> I, that's part. You know, you grow. Yeah. You, grow, you, know? you learn and grow, and and there's also that um, in order to do that, you have to you have to be horrible. Mm. You know, every time that you start off, you're like your first podcast is what 37 for you guys. Yeah. So when you get to, to 90, 100, 110, you're going to be so much better. And you guys are good now. You guys have stuff figured out. You've got some good inv- advice from people. Uh, you've reached out to people. You know, you're not just trying to do it by yourself and being stubborn and say, this is what we're going to do and we're going to stick with it. Mm-hmm. Um, you guys will also improve, you know, and it's going to be great to look through that. You guys seem like the type of guys who's, who are going to follow through with it. Your, your mission of providing purpose to the listener. Um, and it's not two hours of just, you know, ego stroke. It's uh, <laughs> to provide value to the listeners. And I think right. uh, it's going to be great. And you guys will continue to improve too. And you'll get past what you might think is mediocre. Um, and that's just where everybody is. You're a mediocre sheep hunter until you're better. You're mediocre at fishing until you're better. It's just yeah. Yeah. part of life. That's that's a great way to look at it. I, I, I agree with that. Well, and, and I think that a big part of it is just to, once you accept that and you, and you really, you, you just bite into that and understand that there's more. And that was one thing that it really took me a little while to figure out it. I mean, I was probably in my late twenties by the time I really figured out that I don't know everything Yeah, and, and I do need to learn more. <laughs> and there's this yeah. whole vast, you know, huge array of stuff that I don't understand and don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, that's very, very true there. Actually, I was listening to uh, one of your episodes on the way here um, to the recording and it was the uh, tell stories uh, don't make content episode. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that was, that was a really good one. I really, I really enjoyed what you had to say there about, yeah. um, kind of putting purpose behind the stuff that you create and, yeah. and, and finding the, the, the reasons for why you're making it, not just making random stuff to throw out there. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah. I feel like that's the, the, the world needs more of that. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> yeah. It's been fun to reach out to, to a lot of those, the people behind the cameras. I've been really interested in, in talking to them because they're, super super creative and they don't always get the attention that the person in front of the camera does mm, so right. reaching out to i just recorded a podcast this morning with luke dusenberry oh and yeah he's done a lot of the, the films with uh, go hunt yeah um and then um uh travis bowton doing the the stone glacier stuff it just it's super and john abernathy with uh with elk 101 i mean these guys are just they pursued you know they were mediocre at something and then they got really really good but then also found a way of putting that into the outdoor realms. You might know a lot about video editing. You might know a lot about photography. Mm-hmm. And now I'm going to put that into this and I can, I can put these two things that I really like together. I'm going to take my photography or my filmmaking. I'm going to apply it to something else that I really like to do and then get better at that too. And that's just, it's just yeah. cool to hear them um, talk about that because they have a lot, you know, just a lot to share and an interesting perspective. Yeah. No, that's that's really good. No, I, I I know that's a lot of the reason why I enjoy hunting in Alaska mm-hmm. is it's a constant process of every time I go out, I encounter something a little bit different than the time before, and it challenges me in a new way, whether it's physically or mentally or um, a, a different tactic of a hunt that I have to employ. If, uh, if it's a different weather system that I'm dealing with, there's always something different to challenge yourself in yep. in alaska and and not just alaska but really anywhere you go if you're pushing yourself to do things that you haven't done before it's a constant learning process and and you never arrive you know mm. uh, all, all the best mentors in in the hunting world that, that i have spoken with over the years now they're all in a constant process of learning to to perfect their craft even somebody that kills a 65 inch bull moose every year 
comes back with a brand new story every year about, man, well, this year I had to do X, Y, Z. And last year right. it was ABC. And that there's always a new challenge that gets brought to it. And, and I think that's what keeps drawing me back to it because mm-hmm. you never arrive, you know, right. life living in town and you just have your nine to five and you just go home and you mow the yard and you watch TV and you go to bed and you just wake up, copy and paste the next day. Yeah. There's, there's no variable in, involved in that. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's why, I mean, at least for me, that's, that's a lot of why I really enjoy um, getting outside and hunting as much as I do. Oh, absolutely. And that's, that's a huge component for, for anybody I think that really enjoys it is, is just even in a failed hunt, even if right. you, you do come home empty handed. Yeah. You're not truly coming home empty handed because you right. might not have got the animal, but you figured out at least one thing that didn't work. Mm-hmm. So you know right. what, you maybe know what not to do next time. Exactly. Hammer Bullets produces what we at the Northern Hunter consider to be the most premium and best working monolithic bullets on the market today. These bullets are easy to load, extremely accurate, and best of all, they're always in stock and ready to ship. The guys at Hammer designed them so that after penetrating the hide of an animal, it sheds its petals, initiating a massive energy dump while retaining the rear shank for maximum penetration. These bullets are built with 100% focus on how they perform on game, and their proprietary designs produce great BCs with specialized pressure grooves for amazing inherent accuracy and speed. They have a minimum expansion velocity of 1,800 feet per second, which allows for long-range shots, but with no maximum velocity, making them perfect for every cartridge from your granddaddy's old 30-30 to the high-velocity round like the Weatherby 3378 without having to worry about your bullet failing. To view their expansive selection and find the perfect match for your hunting needs, go to hammerbullets.com and use discount code THENORTHERNHUNTER to drop the hammer on your next adventure. So you'd mentioned you're, uh, you're based out of Southeast. Um, why don't you go in a little bit about where you're at or where you're from, uh, your kind of your, your history in hunting and, um, I'd kind of like to hear like what, what kind of got you into, you know, producing, uh, media of, of any kind, you know, the podcast and writing and things like that. Like what kind of spurred you into, you know, exposing this world? Cause 20, you know, 2017 was, uh, not a, a super hot time for, for hunting podcast. That was, you know, before some of them were out and, uh, there were a few mm-hmm. out. Um, but you know, I mean, we started in 2022. I mean, <laughs> there's a slew of them out already, you know? Yeah. Um, my parents moved to uh, Cloac on Prince of Wales Island when I was five. So, okay. um, born in Colorado, moved to Cloac when I was five. Did uh, all my growing up there, um, and then when I was in college at Arizona, for the obvious reasons, dry, warm, you know, big <laughs> sports <laughs> program. You know, I just wanted to go and be a Division One fan. I didn't care about playing basketball or anything. I just wanted to be around mm. a whole bunch of people wearing red. Um, so um, after that, and I, I went home every summer too. Yeah. I'd kind of hang out and play. And then uh, I got a teaching job in California out of that, did some time in California. And then again, every summer, as soon as school's out, the day, next day I was back home in uh, Kloak fishing. And then uh, the day before I had to be back as a teacher, I was, I was, I was on the plane. So my hands would still have, you know, the cuts from the fish and the, like the real rugged life of Southeast Alaska was still on my hands and I'm, I'm picking at it. And I'm like, Oh gosh. <laughs> and then my hands would heal and they'd be soft again. And I'd be back in my teacher mode in Alaska, in, uh, in California, uh, moved back to, um, Kowak in 2013, got a teaching job in catch can. So I've been there since. 
And, um, yeah, nice. I love it. Love uh, teaching in the, in Ketchikan. Uh, I got a degree in journalism. So that kind of started the writing thing. I liked sports okay. writing. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, <clears throat> when I was covering the men's basketball team at U of A, we went to the NCAA tournament. And so as a, as a student journalist, as a junior in college, I'm looking at, you know, the ESPN people and the, the everyone else and like kind of what the life is like. And I just thought, man, this, is this really kind of what I want to do? Cause to get to this point, you don't just start off covering men's basketball, especially university of Arizona being a really good, notable team. You don't start there. Do I really want to start covering, you know, high school softball for $18,000 a year? And that's nothing against high school softball or high school sports at all. I coached for to 12 years, Mm. but to get to that point, you have to do so much and you have to potentially sacrifice. And we've seen it now. And, you know, Stephen A. Smith and those other, you know, talking heads, I don't even know if they believe what they say, Yeah, you know, right. but it's just outrageous and it's loud and it's hot takes. And it was all that. And that was starting to get a lot of traction. I'm like, well, I, do I really want to try to hot take my way up to covering these things? Or I want to sacrifice or this life, you know, just always on the road, always doing that. And thought, man, it seems exciting, but I'm not sure if that's for me. Right. Um, so when I started writing, it was for a newspaper writing outdoor columns. And I found mm-hmm. that I love being able to just write my experiences. So I was reading a lot of Bill Heavey and Patrick McManus, uh, the back page columns in Field and Stream and Outdoor Life. So I liked that they would just tell their story. And it was a lot mm. of fun for me. It wasn't uh, it wasn't really analysis. There wasn't, uh, you know, recap. It wasn't DIY. It was just kind of what I felt and tell the story. And I really, really liked that sort of writing. So uh, writing the outdoor column and then uh, did some freelance writing for some magazines. So um, that's kind of been the writing experience. And then I felt there was something missing when I, I would write some features and interview some people, but there was just a lot that was left out of stories that were only 600 words long or a thousand words long. So right. the podcast was a natural fill for that where I could talk for hours with people and you didn't have to worry about editing and didn't have to worry about, you know, taking stuff out. What's, what's important to, uh, to include and what do you paraphrase? What do you directly quote? Um, uh, so that's just kind of a natural filling in of that gap. So, um, and then okay. as far as the book goes, um, I set off to write a book about, um, just living in Alaska, uh, and it happened to be during 2020. And so yeah. <laughs> it was a book about hunting and fishing and just living in Alaska, getting through the dark winters. But then it also happened to be about teaching during COVID. Um, yeah. so that was kind of a, it, it was a fun project. Glad that, uh, glad I did that. It was just month by month look and it was, it was as it was happening too. So I didn't, yeah. Look back at March through the eyes of someone who's lived through August and be like, wait a second here. <laughs> I left those chapters intact. So it was a snapshot of of what I was thinking at the time. And then uh, my latest book, uh, Beyond the Hunt, is just a bunch of stuff from the last couple of years of thoughts and ideas of, of the outdoor uh, realm and um, mm. some columns, some little features, some, I wouldn't call them rants, but just you know, things about conservation, things about, you know, the industry and, um, defining what your value is going to be or where your place is going to be is an important thing for people. And we talked about that with your podcast and you have a clear idea of what you want to provide, um, and the product and the value. Um, whereas some people, it seems just about how, how much, how can I make money? How can I make this my, my living? So, well, yeah, it, it should be a matter of, you know, what are you providing to people? And if that's something is important, then that is going to be what happens. It's not something you can just say, I'm going to quit my job, spend a ton of money on filmmaking <laughs> or a podcast, and it's just going to be big. Well, 
people respond to people who are providing value and who are authentic and you have to be real authentic. You can't just say I'm being authentic and that's kind of the, that's kind of the background, the writing, the podcast and, and, and here we are. Yeah. Excellent. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's kind of funny with the whole authentic thing. I mean, sometimes I, I almost feel like, uh, us talking about, you know, still working jobs and things like that. And everything. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's almost like a little too, too authentic sometimes when you, when you compare yourself to some of the, the, the big names in the industry that, you know, are out there living it. And it's, yeah you know, of, of course that's everybody's dream, but I mean, every, you know, the, the goal is always to be just yourself mm-hmm. and, and people mm-hmm. are going to like you for who you are or they're not. And that's, that's right. not your concern. Right. <laughs> you know, right. so. Yeah. That's such a tough thing because whenever you, if you podcast about your life, and I found this with writing a lot, like, man, if people don't like my writing, but I write about my life, they're like, does my life suck? Man, this story is boring or this book is boring. Like, is my life boring? Oh my gosh. You can really take it personal, but, you know, hunting is is a pretty small demographic. It's, there's a lot of hunters, but, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's hunting books don't get huge unless you're, you're Renella. Um, tied to meat eater, Cam Haynes, people like that, their books are going to be big just because they have name recognition. Right. Yeah. Um, and then same thing with podcasts, you know, like there's a lot of really, really good podcasts and really, really good people and they don't have a huge following. And, you know, that's sometimes it ends up like that. Sometimes it doesn't. And that's, mm-hmm. that's fine. You know, yeah. same thing with, with writing, you can be doing a lot, a lot of writing for a long time and just be happy with it. Yeah. So. Right. Right. <laughs> exactly. Well, I think this would, uh, if, if that, uh, answers our first question there, I, I, I know, uh, the first kind of fall hunting season opportunity mm-hmm. that we have up here in Alaska is the beginning of August deer hunting as residents. And, uh, that, that's something that you have a lot of experience with. Um, I, I know we've talked about before, um, some of our later fall blacktail deer hunts. Um, but you do a lot of alpine deer hunts, um, and, mm. and, uh, and sick of blacktail deer hunting opens the beginning of August in, in, in a lot of the islands down there in the Southeast part of Alaska. And, uh, so that, that's, that's a whole different, uh, type of hunting than we are used to up here in the interior. And, uh, something I haven't even done yet is go from salt water to alpine, um, with a backpack and camp up there for several days kill a buck and then come back down through all that jungle mess. <laughs> and, uh, you know, August, it's not going to be as cold, but there's going to be three times as much foliage and all the leaves are still on the brush and it's a yeah. whole different battle. So, uh, talk about kind of your, your first deer hunt and, and, and kind of your, uh, your introduction to that and, and how old you were and some things that you've learned mm-hmm. since then. And then just talk about some recent experiences and, uh, and, and why you like doing that. Yeah. Uh, ironically tragically whateverly i didn't hunt growing up um the cross-country season was in august and then that went right into basketball season so every weekend i had cross-country i had basketball okay and we moved up from colorado and so my mom and dad were used to whitetail hunting Mm. and so as soon as dad shot a blacktail in the bottom of a clear cut (laughs) and then had to drag it out even though you know it wasn't super super heavy he's like man that's a lot of work for pretty small deer right yeah they weren't super into it and we bought a boat and dad really wanted to use the boat and so uh we used the boat to go fishing and i was at the river every weekend uh, that i could or after school so i was really fished a lot growing up but i didn't hunt so okay it was when i moved back in in 2013 that i started hunting and and 
you know, it kind of became this, this cool replacement. You know, when you're in high school, you have an identity and maybe you put a lot of, of time and effort into being, um, an athlete and being on a team. Mm-hmm. And so all that drive for, you know, basketball, I'm just driven. This is my thing. Once you're done playing, it's like, Ooh, what do I do? Right. So then it went like basketball coaching. And so moving back up here, um, all that competitiveness, all that something to go all in outside of work, uh, went into hunting and then being a teacher, having August off, I was able to spend a lot of time, uh, in the Alpine looking around in the subalpine, making all kinds of ridiculous mistakes. Um, so what I've found is that because Southeast Alaska has its roots in logging, particularly Ketchikan and, 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 um, Prince of Wales, that's just where I hunt, but uh, other places too, there's typically logging roads and there's typically, uh, access points to, mm. to some of these areas. So you can go from, uh, sea to the Alpine busting through all that stuff. And a lot of times that's how you're going to get to some of these less pressured peaks. And so that's kind of the necessity, but, uh, there's definitely an opportunity to get on the, um, take a boat somewhere, get on a, um, an old logging road and try to make that, uh, your, your path to get up there. So it still takes a long time. You're still, uh, fighting alders for, for a lot of it, but it's mm-hmm. just a little easier. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you're saying old, old logging yeah. roads, I mean, you're talking like from way back in the day, like, yeah, way back yeah. in the day. Some of those aren't, aren't too bad. And some, of, uh, some of them, mm-hmm. if they've been doing some thinning or some, some improvements, they, They'll uh, take that old road. They'll take care of all the uh, alders so you can get up there with a oh, four-wheeler. Okay. I, I don't have, uh, but some people can. I just have to walk it. Yeah. Uh, I'll also take a mountain bike. I've done that before. Put a little trailer on the mountain bike and, and ride yeah. it. Yeah. Um, but some of those are really, really overgrown. And so you're yeah. e-scouting and you're looking at this old logging road and you think this is going to give me great access <laughs> to the outline. But that Google Earth or that OnX or that Go Hunt image is a couple of years old and that thing is totally overgrown. So yeah. you're not getting a four on there and it might even be hard to even walk through that because those alders once they get to one two inches thick i mean it's just it's horrible right and i think this is a great scouted way to get up there but it's no longer um so that's tough yeah yeah i can imagine yeah i've been on some and and it's 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 fascinating how you know it looks it looks nice and clear when you first start walking on it. And then the farther back you get, it just gets thicker and thicker. Mm-hmm. And then maybe even like a, a landslide happens since then. It just, yeah. Yeah. It just becomes impossible to pass. And the next yeah. thing you know, you're looking back at your Onyx saying, all right, how do I get around that? To, yeah. You know, yeah. And, yeah. and readjusting. Yeah. Exactly. Then once you get up there and you get up into that Alpine and there's, it's just so lush because we get so much water. So up there, you got the scree, you got the rock and you get, where am I, where's my water coming from? Up there, you're going to have a couple of flat spots and benches where you're going to have water that you can pump. Um, in the morning, there's going to be dew on the on the deer cabbage, so the deer don't have to. They're not feeding around or not hanging out near water spots. They can get the water mm-hmm. that they need from from the deer cabbage, and it's just lush and beautiful. And you think this is absolutely worth worth the hike. It was just yeah. incredible experience, and you're up there, um, and then the deer they're this like bright orange color against yeah. the green man they <laughs> yeah. stick out so much and you can just post up in glass oh man it's so great and if they if they go up over the ridge you see them you know it's it's it, you you've, you've made the made the work uh, you've done the work you're up there and then um you know you see it then you you duck back over on the other side and then you try to make um try to make a move um and it's it's great it's so much fun mm. because you're 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 making a stock you're hunting um, the problem, of course, sometimes is that that's not the only deer 
on the mountain, you know, usually right, it isn't. Right. So, uh, you, you've peeked over of the side and, and you've, you've seen the deer that you're going to, to make a, make a run at. And, uh, then you, you go back on the other side of the ridge and you're making your move. And then all hundred times out of, out of a hundred times, there's going to be some sort of doe that's just standing there staring right at you. And you think, oh man, don't go, don't go, don't blow this, don't blow this, don't blow this. And they kind of <laughs> look at you and they think, I could blow it if I wanted to. Like, don't do it. Please don't. Please don't. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's, it's just a lot of fun. And like those variables, it's, it's right. You never know what's going to happen. And, and right. that's the thing that makes it never old because, you know, there's, there's always going to be some sort of complication. Even when things come together right, sometimes it's, you know, you, you wonder how it happened because mm-hmm. so many things went right, but then one little thing went wrong or mm-hmm. nothing went right at all, but then somehow it accidentally happens. And so, you know, it's, it's never routine. Um, even mm-hmm. if you have a plan, I'm going to go to this mountain on the opening day. I've looked at it before. I've been there before. I know what to expect. I've been on the mountain. I know where some, uh, some good bucks are, but still like, it's not at all guaranteed. It's just this thing that you have in your head. Mm-hmm. Um, this idea, these the experience you have, the observations you have, but that still doesn't mean anything when, mm-hmm. until you get up there and you actually run the program. Yeah, right. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I, I guess just kind of on that note, just a quick question I've got here is um, for that early August deer hunting, um, how big of an area do you normally see these these uh, these mature bucks traveling that time of year? Mm. Are they pretty uh, pretty local to a certain spot, like around any given lake or a big muskeg, or do they kind of roam around to wherever they want to be? Uh, it, it really really depends. There are sometimes where um, you you go up on a mountain and you see a whole bunch, and so within you know, between two thousand feet and thirty five hundred feet um, over the course of a mile and a half or so, as you're hiking up the ridge, there's just deer peppered throughout. Uh-huh. Um, and then other times you go up there and like it, my, my wife and I went to the same mountain about three weeks later and there was nothing, not, not even a doe. Uh-huh. And so you think, all right, well, did they kind of migrate down a little bit? Did the, did, yeah. did, a, did a wolf come through? Was it more hunters? So it's, it's really hard to tell. And sometimes you really expect it to be a, a high volume area. Um, but sometimes it's just not. And other times you think, man, how are there so many deer in this little, little area? But yeah. it just kind of happens. Yeah. Interesting. Um, Interesting. So what is, uh, so with all that, um, we got opening day coming up. What do you got planned for yeah. that? Uh, I have my, my plan a, and then I have a contingency plan. And oftentimes <laughs> that contingency plan, if it's not run on the opener, it's run within the first couple of days, just yeah. because, you know, stuff's <laughs> going to happen weather wise mm-hmm. or, um, so plan number one is to, uh, take my skiff, um, out of town, just, um, get out, get away from people. There's still a chance because there's only a couple areas that have good anchorage. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the areas have, you know, old logging, uh, um, or have docks from, uh, from old logging landings. So you can get there and so you can access some old logging roads, um, that you can't access from town. So, uh, but those, you know, obviously attract people, um, it's better right. than the road system, but of course you're going to have a concentration of people that have boats. So, yeah. um, that's option number one. I'm probably going to go there about two days early just to make sure, um, because <laughs> right. some people will right. see your boat and I've had people, you know, go right past you, walk past your tent and still go. Um, but, um, I'm going to take my mountain bike out there with a buddy. So I have two mountain bikes, um, mountain bike for a while, gain about a thousand feet. And then, um, we'll go the last little bit through the timber, uh, camp and then, uh, make the last little bit. And we'll probably camp about 1800 to 2000 feet, which is kind of that, um, 
right as you're breaking out of the timber into the, mm-hmm. the subalpine. So we'll be close enough to be able to kind of look around, but not so close where you're kind of blowing things up. So it's like you're in the garage, not like in their kitchen. I think yeah. some people, you know, you get up and you, you, you ride on top. And I've done that before where you, you camp right on top and it's awesome and you wake up, but you got to be stinking ready because sometimes you come around the corner of some buck brush and it's right there. And you think, man, I, you probably heard me snoring, but somehow it didn't spook. So, <laughs> right, right. Um, but on the way up, I don't want to mess up some really good terrain. So, right, um, right. We'll kind of stay a little bit lower. Yeah. So, talk about um, time of day and activity for that early season deer hunting. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I, I would probably assume that you're going to see a lot of activity, like in the early um, first several hours of the day, and then it kind of slows down the midday and then picks up again in the evening. But, um, what's your personal experience with that? And what time of day seems to be the best time to be looking for them? Usually the, the first hour and a half, two hours of the day is kind of your prime, but, uh, weather really depends, you know, down here, we've had some, some really hot openers. And so it's been, Mm. you know, four days before just super, super hot. And sometimes it can be dry. So we were talking earlier about uh, how there can be some dew on the, on the deer cabbage. Sometimes it's so dry and you don't even get that rolling in fog and, and mist. So it's just dry and it's desolate and it gets hot really, really early. So um, if you're not out of the tent ready to go at the first little bit of light, it's over because they've started feeding um, before sunup. And mm. as soon as the sun starts to come out, they're not feeding for another hour, hour and a half. They're already going back to, to bed down or they're, they're getting out of the, out of the sun. So, mm. um, there's also been, th- there's been a storm on August 1st or 2nd. And sometimes you can play that. So you look at the weather and you think, okay, this is going to break and they're going to wait until the storm is over. And then as soon as it kind of clears and calms down, they're just going to pop and it's going to be awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, so I've, I've had, a, a, have had that work out pretty well, hike up in the rain, I think it was the second or third because the opener was so stinking hot. Nothing came out. We were up there ready to go, but it was just so hot. Um, we saw one buck that was kind of down and away from us, but it was already feeding back into the into the bush and the brush before we had a, t- a chance to even make any sort of move. So yeah. um, we came back a couple of days later. It had stormed. We hiked up as it was the, the tail end of the storm, um, did a little shelter. And then as soon as, uh, as soon as the weather kind of calmed down, we got out from, uh, under the shelter and deer fed out another fed out and then a nice buck fed out another one fed out. So, um, weather has, has a huge, um, it's a huge variable. So your morning two hours, your evening two hours are the best, but that can really be influenced by weather. Right. Um, right. And then that all said, shoot, my first four point that I shot was at noon on a really hot day because yeah. it was just in this little, um, little crevice that was in the shade. And it was in a, it was a steep little rocky area that didn't really get any direct sunlight at any point. And uh-huh. so that buck knew and it probably had came out and fed and then went down to this little spot where it could get some cool breeze coming up from, uh, from the timber. And it was, it was out and thought it was safe. It was safe, but you know, we made a pretty good stock and, and took the shot. So nice. I think what happens sometimes, and this happens to all hunters, is you think that if it doesn't happen in the first two hours, and oh man, well, uh, it's not going to happen. And then sometimes you can kind of waste those midday hours. Uh-huh. Um, you know, the bucks are there, and right. there's some really good hunters all across. You know, you see that when you're watching you know, stuff from lower 48, those those mule deer that it's you know 105 degrees outside, but there's always someone who is able to glass up a buck that's bedded down 
right. you know, and they, or, or they're, they're moving beds or something like that. And so, you know, those sort of things apply to Alaska too. Like the bucks were there. Mm-hmm. It's just a matter of finding them. So if you're really good at glassing into the buck brush, or if you're really good at just kind of, you know, sticking with it rather than hunting for two hours and then leaving the mountain or hunting for two hours, going back to the tent, sleeping, um, you know, right. just sticking with it is that's, that's the main thing because they're right. still there. Right, right, exactly. So when they leave after the morning feed time, say it's just a decent weather day um, and uh, it, it, it's not too terribly hot, but the sun comes up, um, let's say it's two hours into daylight and then they all go to bed somewhere. Um, do they tend to leave those open areas and like actually go down into the brush a little bit to bed or do they just find kind of a pocket of brush and then bed down with a view kind of overlooking any area that, 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 uh, that, that they think a predator might come up from? Yeah. Some of those pockets of brush are, it's that, that alpine hemlock and it can yeah. be six, eight, 10 feet. So they can mm. go into there and they can even still feed because enough sunlight comes through where you can have grass that's in there. Or you can have stuff that they can eat in there so they can be up and feeding, but they're in the shade. Right. It's way cooler. Uh, but yeah, they'll, they'll, they'll come down out of that really open alpine stuff. Sometimes it's timber. Sometimes it's that, that buck brush. And sometimes you can catch them when they're going, um, along that line. But Mm-hmm. You, you typically don't see him like going up and over, mm-hmm. uh, the ridge. It's just moving. That's down below. And, and some of the difficult things about, uh, down here, and as soon as the timber starts, it's so stinking tall mm-hmm. and so stinking steep, you mm-hmm. know, Southeast Alaska is, is so much of that glacial carved stuff. And it's a lot more monolithic faces, uh-huh. um, than up there where you got, um, you know, like sheep hunting, it's, it's, you know, the shale right. and it's, right. it's, it's, right. it's finely settled rock and scree. Right. Uh, down here, it's just a whole different program. Yeah. Um, and it's so stinking steep. And so you think, well, it's, it's wooded, so it wouldn't be bad, but you get a lot of, you get a lot of cliffs in there and it can be tough. Even if you do see one, um, right on the edge there, you think, man, if this thing falls, I'm not (laughs) going to be able to see where it ends up (laughs) going. You know, like I've never, I've never hunted a sheep, but you can kind of see where it tumbles and see where it ends up. If it slides down into that timber, you have no idea where it's going. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. Well, I mean, so kind of on that note, um, sometimes it can be easy to see kind of where a ram does fall, even if he goes into a cliff, because they are pretty sizable animals. Um, mm. There's a lot of bulk to them on, uh, well, at least on a lot of big rams. Um, but I guess uh, kind of a good comparison to that would be how big is a nice, big, mature, early August blacktail buck going to be, like weight-wise? Uh, about 200 pounds is kind of the, the weight that people brag about shooting deer. I don't know if anybody's actually weighed the deer because yeah. if you do shoot one up there, you're not going to drag the entire thing, guts and all <laughs> down there to weigh it. So right. put that on the Instagram, like, good job, man. You did a lot of extra work just so you could weigh it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, for sure. <laughs> got sure. to get those bragging points. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, but I, that's, uh, I, that's, that's kind of the marker. Um, and then you have. 60, 65, 70 pounds of, of meat is what people tend to really brag about when, uh, when they get stuff. So if you do a pretty okay. good clean job, you can, you can get that amount of meat. But I think in the, in the reg book, or when you Google it on the, uh, Alaska department of fishing game website, they say that a, that a nice buck, you should expect 35 to 45 pounds of, of, of meat boned out mm-hmm. meat at that yeah. point. So yeah, gotcha. that, that sounds about right. You know, and I, I've, I've shot some some bucks on the smaller end hunting down there in southeast before, and then um, 
the last couple of years, we've actually killed a couple of really big bodied bucks the last couple of years. And I think live weight, I, I would only estimate them to be, I mean, maybe 175, 180 pounds, but that's, that's a very strong maybe. I mean, it, it yeah. but it, it, it was, it was just heavy enough that it would be really difficult to just throw one over your shoulder and just, and just uh, army carry it down to the boat or something like yeah. that. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, that, that, that seems to be kind of my experiences, you know, probably somewhere on, on the low end, just over a hundred pounds. And mm-hmm. then on the high end, um, and this is live weight, you know, probably close to 200, but probably not even quite 200. I mean, yeah, even up here in the interior, we see a lot of people overestimating black bear live weight. Oh yeah. You know, yeah. All the time. Yeah. Because in the low 48, you know, people, people measure the size of black bears off of, well, that's a 300 pounder or a 500 pounder <laughs> right. is, is, is a huge one. And up here. You know, guys that come up to Alaska for the first time, maybe in the military, and they they kill an average five and a half, six foot black bear, and they think it was three fifty. And mm-hmm. man, three fifty is a stout black bear up here. I mean, that is a heavy bear. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, I, I was just curious about the uh, about the weight that that you've seen them down there. Yeah. Yeah, and I think sometimes too, you know what a nice bear is, but you don't have an exact weight to it or you don't have the exact right. measurement or like a very mm-hmm. objective number to apply to it so sometimes it's well i don't know it was good so you <laughs> 200 pounds i don't know yeah. or you 150 <laughs> yeah. pounds and <laughs> right. because this is bigger than you've ever seen or you've ever killed before and you think this is a mega yeah. but you haven't actually seen a true mega mega and right. then right right it totally gets blown out of the water so you think right. oh man i way overestimated on that and i told this guy that it was a 175 pound deer but it's probably like 135 because now yeah. i know Right. Now I'm looking at, at something that's, that's really big. And, right. you know, as right. a fisherman, that's like, totally, you, you hold it out, you know, for the picture. <laughs> and right. people who have experience, they look at it and think, man, that eye is huge compared to the rest of its head. There's no way that's a 35 pound king. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty funny. Yeah. No, as I, I prefer to uh, weigh the meat while I'm processing it. You yeah. Know, you kind of look at the, the, your, how many packages of, you know, one pound packages of burger you ended up with and then your Mm -hmm. roasts and things like that. That's the weight that matters to me. Yeah. You know, is is the the, freezer weight, the freezer weight. Yeah. Yeah. And aside from that, you know, length, width, your squared number, that's all I really care about. Yeah. Yeah. How how many, uh, how many boxes on Alaska airlines, uh, am I going to be underweight? (laughs) (laughs) Am I going over, you know, how many 48 pound boxes do I have? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's pretty fun. Yeah. And, And I would say I was fairly surprised when, um, when we went down there to Southeast yeah. to hunt, because uh, the one of the the big buck you got, and uh-huh. then uh, my buck, yeah, because um, mine had already dropped its antlers, but right. it had a pretty stout body yeah. on it, and I, I was pretty surprised at the size Those of it. I was expecting two, much smaller. Yeah, the, well, but, I I think the big one that I shot, and then the one that you shot that had already dropped his headgear. Those mm-hmm. two of the other several that we'd killed on that particular week. Um, those were probably 30% bigger body than everything else was. Yeah. Um, that they were, they were substantially they were bigger deer. deer. Yeah. yeah. And, and I mean, it was, it was heavy enough that, uh, that, that when I went to grab yours by the back leg to drag it out of the woods there right. after we found it, um, man, it, it was, it was a hefty deer. It I mean, was. I, I had to lean over and really step into, <laughs> to, to drag in that one. Yeah. Um, even across the snow. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, yeah. E- even across the frozen puddles that were back there in the woods, it, yep. it didn't slide very easily. Um, so, so what's you guys' uh, I know I've, I've looked at the regs before, but down there, how many are you allowed to get? 
during during a full, um, it, full year it varies uh some areas it's uh four some areas it's uh two and then also sometimes depends on the uh federal subsistence um if you're hunting um unit two uh you can get four bucks um but on federal land the federal subsistence supersedes state as we know so if you are a a rural resident on Prince of Wales Island, which it's all rural, um, you get an extra week in July mm-hmm. and then you can get an extra buck. And then if you are not from there, you're not federally qualified. You can't hunt federal land on most of Prince of Wales until the 16th of August. Okay. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of unfortunate, but it does seem more of a, a good faith compromise than some of the areas that are doing full on shutdowns. So, mm-hmm. um, the deer population on Prince of Wales has, you know, people are talking about it plummeting. Right. Some people say that it's not as good. And other people say it's just a matter of, well, you can't drive around and shoot four points anymore. You just got to work a little bit harder. And I think we've talked about that a little bit too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, um, you know, that's, um, you know, a compromise. You can still hunt. You can still get your four just for the most part. The best stuff is going to be after uh, August 16th. Yeah. And that's mostly on the road system. There's a part of, of Southern Prince of Wales that uh, you can still hunt on the first. So people can, can fly out and do that. Okay. Um, and then uh catch can area is, uh, is four. Um, as you're heading North, uh, four and two is kind of the, kind of the key numbers as you're mm-hmm. going North. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that's still a pretty decent amount of meat though. If you oh, can tag yeah. out, yeah, and, you know, put put all those deer in the freezer. Then, as long yeah. as you put in your effort and, and absolutely stay out there. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, mm-hmm. let's jump to a commercial real quick, and then uh, I want to dive into a little bit more about that Prince of Wales. All right, folks. We all know that one of the most common mishaps in hunting is damage to your rifle scope. Last year, I found the solution to that problem with the Stealthy Hunter rifle cover. It wraps around your scope and action securely to protect it from getting knocked off of zero or even severely damaged. Stealthy Hunter also has a glassing pad and a wide variety of supplements for the outdoorsman, such as protein powder, CBD products, turmeric, and gut health supplements. They also make a lightweight trauma kit weighing in at just 14 ounces that includes everything you need and nothing you don't for all of your backcountry medical emergencies. To shop all of their equipment and supplements, Go to StealthyHunter.com and enter the discount code at checkout, The Northern Hunter, to save on your order today. All Stealthy Hunter equipment is proudly made in the USA. All right, we're back. And uh, surprisingly, Mo is here with us. We didn't think he was going to make it for this one. <laughs> How you doing there, buddy? Oh, I'm I'm doing all right. This This... Uh this video call stuff should be real easy these days, but. <laughs> yep. All right. Well, we're glad you're here to join us. He's going to be joining us for the rest of this episode. So, um, but Jeff, so yeah, I was going to ask you how, so what's the basic concept of what's going on with Prince of Wales? What's the situation down there? How did it get that bad? Um, and how's the hunting been on that island since? Because you hear a lot of people say it's basically eliminated. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as deer hunting goes on that island. Yeah, it's, it's been interesting. And most of the people know Prince of Wales because it became a hotbed for, um, 
wolf saving wolf and then you know the the big controversy with wolves in the in the 90s and so mm-hmm. people know of prince of wales for deer hunting just as much as they know about it for for the wolves and that being a, a, a really contentious issue so um that's you know it's <laughs> it's a pretty pretty well-known island um for multiple things but um you know, there's a lot of things that go into it, you know, logging practices, uh, cause you have to have really good habitat and that's all of Southeast Alaska. And a lot of, uh, the, the timber companies have looked at what are the best practices when it comes to, um, to responsibly taking, taking uh, timber. So, um, that's an issue. Uh, weather's an issue. You have a couple bad winters and if it happens to come at the same time, there's a, there's a pretty big wolf population, then, you know, that's, that's going to impact things, right. you know, up, up North, I saw something, um, um, about wolves killing, you know, 80% or some crazy number. I don't know what number it was of the, of the moose calves up there. Oh yeah. Um, no, they, they it, do. So, you know, all it takes is, you know, one or two bad winters, which is going to kill off a lot of the the calves anyway, plus some, you know, some high numbers of wolves. And all of a sudden you have, um, a, a depleted, um, depleted stock. And I think it's difficult to tell because you have people with a lot of, um, anecdotal insight, which is really, really important. But then you also have biologists who've done studies about wolf populations and deer populations and doing flyovers is a very difficult thing. And just guessing, oh. you know, cause they're, you know, you're doing your flyover when the weather is good. So maybe when the weather is good, maybe they're out there, maybe not. So right. if they do a flyover and they make a deer estimate based on that, but you know, maybe it was a little bit off because they're imperfect. And then, you know, maybe the wolf estimate was a little bit off. And so there's just so many variables in it, but, um, um, I haven't hunted it in, in, in a little, in a couple of years. I have some friends right. that, uh, that hunt it and, you know, they do well, but ultimately it comes down to, you know, are you going to be willing to work? And some honey holes that you used to go to might not have deer. Maybe they, it's not that all deer are gone. It's that maybe that area kind of got hit and you have to find somewhere else. So, yeah, um, but it's really easy to blame mostly outsiders. You know, it's, it's horrible because of the, the, the TV shows that have gone up there and now more people than ever are going up there and buying property and they're, they're hunting up there and doing flyouts. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, a lot of the locals are pretty upset about that. And that's something that, you know, I think about a lot cause that's, that's home. I don't live there now, but I think, man, I, as someone who writes, as someone who, you know, does a podcast that, yeah, you could just do a DIY about how to go to Prince of Wales and how to do this or how to do that. And, and, you know, name your community in Southeast Alaska for deer hunting. And you could put together some DIY type stuff and you could, you know, get a lot of hits for it. Right. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, you could be corking yourself because you're telling everybody what to do and where to go. And that's where you wanted to go. Right. So, <laughs> right. Um, exactly. Yeah. So it's, 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 it's winters, it's wolves, it's habitat, it's attention, it's all of those things. Um, but we sometimes just blame the most convenient thing. A lot of times the most convenient thing is, is a wolf or, or, or yeah. Steve or Nella or whoever. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, and as far as the wolves go there, um, the, the story we get up here is that, you know, the populations have just absolutely boomed over the last several years and, and yeah. to, to the point they've been implementing some, uh, extra seasons, some, some elongated seasons, um, trying to manage that, that population. Um, and with very little success from what I hear yeah, is that they're, yeah. they're really struggling to maintain the, the population of wolves to a, a sustainable amount. Well, and fewer and fewer and folks in Alaska now, just because of, of barrier of entry mainly being cost, fewer folks are trapping now than I think have right. been in a long, long time. 
Yeah. Um, you know, just the logistics of, of financially making that investment to do it, even if it's just to help out your own hunting area. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I know somebody, well, I, I know of somebody that, that lives on POW and, uh, he does his best to get out and trap every year. And he's always talking about the wolf numbers and, and, uh, he's got trail cameras out monitoring them. And, uh, He's got some pretty good uh, convincing photos of wolves carrying out deer parts, and, and oh yeah, uh, he finds a lot of kills in there. And but you know, I think to Jeff's point though, it's easy to just be localized with your theories. And mm-hmm. if you only ever hunt a ten or fifteen mile stretch of say a logging road, and then a couple of trails in there, and that's all you look at, then yeah, I mean, as wolves come through that area, might get depleted. But you know, part of it. Part of being a good hunter, especially in today's world with more and more competition, not just from predators, but from other hunters as well, part of being a successful hunter, even in Alaska, mm-hmm. is being able to adapt to changing conditions. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And uh, whether that's a bad winter kill and, and a certain area gets killed out, or if it's predators that move in and kind of blow an area out, or if people just figure out where to go and they end up in your spot, you know, part right. of part of uh part of learning and developing your skills as a hunter is being able to pick a new spot do some e-scouting and then uh and then just go put boots on the ground and try something new right well and and to that point the 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 importance of the trapping yeah um and continuing that practice yeah a lot of people kind of discount that or or think of it as an older practice yeah um but there is i'm not going to say the the community that my, my friends live in but um anybody that traps might might realize what I'm talking about, mm-hmm. but there was, there's a community out north of Fairbanks where a lot of people used to trap wolves. Mm-hmm. It was a big area. And then for several years, there was a bunch of mange that went around. Mm. And so people ended up pulling out and pulling their sets and not going back in during the winters. And after a, just a few years of that, the wolf numbers just skyrocketed. And wow. it's really impacted the moose numbers in that area. Um, and the, the the folks I know that live out there, I mean, they're even, you know, carrying their pistol into their backyard to let the dogs out because oh, wow. they've had to chase them out of town and wow. things like that. So um, it really is important for people to continue those practices and continue those management techniques. Yeah. Um, but one thing I'll say is that a, a good gauge to use, and I don't know if it's actually a good gauge, but I'm, I'm going to trust the gauge because it's really the only one we have, is that there are paid people whose entire job is to manage these herds. Yeah. Um, whether it's caribou, moose, deer, anything like that. And if you look in the regs, they haven't changed the, the harvest numbers. Yeah. You know, it's still, if you look at unit two, it's still four. So I would think if it, if it was so bad that it was impacting the deer to where they were non-existent, mm-hmm. then they would put in an emergency order closure similar to what they do for other things. Yeah. Um, but the fact that they haven't done that kind of le- le- leaves me with some hope. So. Right. No, I'd say like in, in the history of, of Alaska, like we've, there've always been this kind of boom and bust of things. And that's kind of what nature does. And yeah. mm-hmm. obviously you're not going to have a massive wolf population if there's not anything for them to eat. Right. And yeah. the wolf population will then follow that and just kind of this back and forth sort of thing. Um, but uh, yeah, I remember, have you read anything, uh, any of the Frank Glasser stuff about oh, uh, yeah. when he was trapping wolves? Oh, you know, yeah. At first, I've, when he when he first yeah. arrived in the yeah. Denali area, there weren't, weren't a whole lot of wolves. And then all of a sudden, there were a whole bunch and, you know, you know, trapping a whole bunch and that sort of thing. And he talks about how hunting them is nearly impossible, mm-hmm. but trapping them is the only really viable thing that you can do. And that is kind of an, an outdated practice in the eyes of many. 
Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people would rather, right. I'm just going to shoot deer. Um, right. I'm not going to, and bear too, bear yeah. too. Uh, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they exactly. know exactly when the fawns are, uh, are, exactly. are um, going to be dropped and yeah. they, you know, they wreak havoc on those too. So, yeah. um, if you're just a deer killer, um, that's fine, you know, do what you want. You're not obligated to, you know, if, if you shoot two deer, then you also have to shoot a predator. Like that's, there's no rule. <laughs> right, right. This is just your personal thing. And if, and if you say, you know, I want to kill deer, but I just can't stomach trapping, then all right, you know, it's to each their own. Um, same thing with, with bear hunting, but you know, that's something that maybe people could consider is, you know, this was a traditional thing that you had people that were hunting both sides of it, not just the food. It was predator and prey. Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of it was, you were using the hides for life. You were using the hides for, right. you know, not just trophy stuff, things like that. And so, because the use of the hides of predators might not be what it used to be. I think that's probably another issue why, yeah. um, people aren't as, as willing to, to go predator control. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I agree. Well, let's, uh, let's grab a gear here and, uh, and, and switch over to talking about some of the equipment that you might be using down there. Um, just kind of leading into it, um, we tend to get a lot of listener questions about bugs in Alaska. <laughs> now, I think it's probably fair to say that every state that has mosquitoes probably thinks that they have it the worst because mosquitoes are just an absolute menace. Yeah. And while they are really, really bad in here in the interior where, where we live, kind of in the middle of the state, um, they are really way worse up north mm-hmm. um up on oh, the north yeah. slope out in the tundra flats but uh kind of touch on what your experience has been with bugs in the early season down there <laughs> i know usually by the time that i'm deer hunting down in southeast um it's november or december time frame there are no bugs yeah. um but uh yeah so w- what are the bugs like in your area in august um, they're really bad. And then I went up on a archery caribou hunt, uh, in that tundra and uh, now they're not as bad. That's, my frame of reference has shifted. Uh, the, the up North that they win, they absolutely yeah. win. Um, yeah, they're, they're a nuisance. They're just constantly around. And of course, when you get a, when you get a buck down, they're just even worse. Um, and I think the worst part is you get bit so many times and then it's just that you're, you're constantly itching and then you're scratching. Um, whereas I think up North, they're just everywhere all the time, like on you. And so yeah, it's, yeah. they're, they're, they're beyond an annoyance. And the, the caribou I shot, it was funny. We, we were able to kind of like pattern him because he would, he'd, he'd be feeding <laughs> and then he'd start moving his head pretty vigorously. And then he'd like freak out, run for about 200 yards and like crazy, you know, circle, whatever. <laughs> and then he'd calm down, go back to feeding. And so we knew that when his head started twitching side by side, he was within about 30 seconds of taking off. He was getting and annoyed. So it was, yeah. Yeah. Just, I mean, <laughs> it, was, it was, it was pretty funny, but yeah, it was, you totally got it. As soon as we went to, to process him, it was, it was unbelievable. It was mm-hmm. just beyond anything that I'd experienced. So yeah. they're pretty bad um, down here. Um, typically, don't use a, a net. Just try to go with as much skin coverage as possible. So right, um, just having a, a light set of gloves, not anything that's going to mm-hmm. be really um, really heavy because you're going to sweat when you're hiking up there. But it is nice to have a thin pair of gloves for the hiking up there. So in case you, if it's steep and you grab onto some devil's club, you're not going to get all messed up because mm-hmm. devil's club is 
I hate it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. I know the stock is medicinal and whatnot, but man, it's just a horrible one. Then the underside of the leaf have spines on it too. So you're, you're not safe. There's no part of that thing is safe. <laughs> uh, so a little thing, a glove for the, for the coverage uh, is nice. So when you're glassing, that's, that's covered. And then um, a hoodie that zips as far up as you can. So the only thing that's really exposed to your eyes and, and your nose. So um, yeah. yeah, no, that doubles club is something else, man. Um, <laughs> No, I, I was just thinking, I was laughing to myself. I should, we should start a, uh, a mosquito alert and kind of take advantage <laughs> of my day job because I, I, I'm going to warn anybody right now, if you're going on a hunt out towards the western part of the state, oh, like yeah. around Galena area, or uh, um, I was in Koyukuk today, and uh, they had some real bad flooding out there. And I can tell you, the second I got off the plane on the airstrip, uh, there was 200 of them just mm-hmm. right Oof. around me. I mean, instantly, yeah. it was bad. So yeah. Not you're, you're gonna be on the west side of alaska definitely keep an eye yeah. out but. yeah my wife and i were in denali in uh mid-june and i guess denali is in a little bit of a, a rain shadow there mm-hmm. and we camped and there were no mosquitoes yeah and uh, it was it was it was crazy there was uh it was pretty cold at night and there one morning we woke up and there was a little bit of uh of frost on the tent but I thought, this is, this is crazy. Yeah. I mean, at some point, I don't know when it happens. I'm sure there's some big rain and all of a sudden it, it goes off, but it was unbelievable to be able to enjoy a meal at the campsite <laughs> and not have to swat mosquitoes, bugs, whatever. And then we mm-hmm. hiked up and there was a little bit of wind, but even when there wasn't a whole lot of wind, you can sit there and you can glass, you can look at the, the, the park sheep and you can do all that. And it's, mm-hmm. it's wonderful. So great, but definitely <laughs> yeah. not like that. Uh, well, and especially if you can longer. be in an area with a, with a, a steady breeze, that's, yeah. a, that's a real nice, yeah, nice addition sure. there. Do you guys have like white socks and no CMs down there too? Yeah. Yeah. The, those are the, those are the worst. Those are the worst. The, the white socks, it's like they, they really attack the eyes and yeah. those yeah, things, they do. they're, uh, they're bite to swelling ratio. If that's a thing, yeah. it's unbelievable. Yeah. Like it's, mm-hmm. It's not something that you can swell up without even really scratching it at all. It's pretty, yeah. Uh, yeah. pretty wild. But yeah, those they're they're terrible. Yeah, that, yeah. I I I always hate those the most. I mean, I, I where, where I uh, where I work for an outfitter um, doing spring bear guiding um, every year. Um, the white socks and the no CMs are just atrocious. And, you know, it, it's down there on the coast. It's not down there as far south as you are. But um, this year it wasn't too terrible. Um, but, uh, the, the last few years, um, certainly, I mean, even when you're out on a boat, a quarter mile mm. offshore, mm-hmm. they are just all around you. <laughs> yeah. And it's not even just mosquitoes. It's, it's for the most part, these little white socks and no CMs. Mm-hmm. It's, it's uncanny how they just find you out there, even on the water. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I, I, at least in my experience, uh, it, it always seems like I'm having to pick up my hat and then wipe them off my forehead because they, they they go up right underneath my hat bill, right up on the brim where it's all sweaty and greasy on your forehead. And then obviously around your eyes, we already talked about that. And I've, you know, had to stand in front of a little shaving mirror at camp multiple times and try to pick them out of my eyeball. Mm. Um, but, but they seem to really be attracted to those, uh, to those real sweaty areas, like around the back of your neck or up on your hairline. Or um, for me, especially underneath the bill of my hat is just a terrible spot for them. Yeah. But uh, yeah, that's, that's yeah, I think no, being that's diligent no too when you're processing an animal, because if you, as you're processing it, you got blood in your gloves or your hands. And then if you scratch or you touch your head, 
Like then, then you got a blood spot on your yeah. hat and that's yeah. going to, that's going to bring them in even more or, you know, you do anything, touch anything. Yeah. It's uh, even worse if you're, if you're fishing. Cause oh, I mean, yeah. that fish oh, slime, yeah. it's, yeah, you might as well just go home. Like, I, I, touch face. <laughs> I need a shower. Otherwise I'm not going to be able to function. Try yeah. again tomorrow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Usually I just rock a head net the whole time. I mean, if they're that bad and they're just annoying me that much, I just put on a head net over, over the top of my hat and then zip, zip up my hoodie up to my chin or, or up to the up to my mouth and uh i just i just deal with having a bug net on i just you know look through it with my binoculars it's it's better than getting eaten alive yeah mm-hmm. if people want to make a reel out of you because you look ridiculous look at this guy like, <laughs> yeah def, i'm not getting eaten man yeah. i don't care i don't <laughs> right. care i don't care yeah well and it can really play a huge part to the enjoyment of your hunt i oh, mean i've known yeah. so many people that they get like two three days into a hunt yeah. with the mosquitoes and the bugs it and, just and, wears and, on you. yeah just the the mental yeah. You know, just, yeah. just, just absolutely yeah. depletes you. Especially from guys that are from out of the state and may, maybe where they're from, they don't have a whole lot of bug problems or, or, or they have mosquitoes, but not no seums. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, this is their introduction to that. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a whole, du- whole different level. Yeah. Um, yeah. But well, that's uh, a, a unfortunate thing. If you think about the amount of money that you might put in as an out of state hunter to come up to Alaska, if the reason why you don't notch the caribou tag or the bear tag or the deer tag is because of mosquitoes that's really unfortunate if yeah. you drew yeah. a tag right and you know you spend all the money to go up there and you mm-hmm. convinced your wife family whatever or you know if it's a woman hunter and you convince your husband to come up here it could come down to something like like mosquitoes because mm, yeah. you don't you're not going to glass as long or you're, you're not going to get out of the tent you're not as motivated and you Right. You're going to hang out. Oh, the bugs are going to be so bad, but that's those, those morning two hours you have to be out there. Right. And then evening too, if, if they've been coming out in the evening, like that could make this, this stinking difference. And you know, you don't want it, you want it to come down to something big. You want it to come down to, they weren't there or they, they, you know, it just, it didn't happen rather than I stayed in the tent because I was afraid of getting my mosquito, my mosquitoes uh, were, were going to be too bad, or I forgot my mosquito net, or I right. I didn't want feel like wearing one because I thought it was ugly. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, didn't, didn't want it in the pictures. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Well, and, and another thing to, I don't think we've brought this up before, but one thing to consider is maybe like some kind of a relief ointment to bring on mm. your pack if you're not used to the mosquitoes, because mm. I, I can tell you after being up here as long as I have now, that the even when they do bite me it's not quite as potent as it used to be like my blood just kind of yeah got used to it um if they're really bad and i get a bunch of concentrated bites then Mm -hmm. then i get that the real bad itching get some afterbite yeah but some afterbite or something like that something to Mm -hmm. kind of ease that that itch because that'll really help with your mental state too after like the first day of getting eaten alive absolutely well let's uh i i think this would be a good spot to just really jump into the gear um I don't know how many folks are really familiar with the type of gear that you're going to be using on that early season Alaska hunt. I mean, sheep hunting opens August 10th um, for uh, for Alaska, but everywhere you're going to be sheep hunting is going to be a lot cooler, um, mm. potentially, at least than, uh, th- than the vast majority of like that southeast part of the state where, where we're talking about deer hunting here. And um, it's a lot wetter down there. Um, the vegetation is a lot different. You have some different challenges to overcome. You're not going to probably hike 40 or 50 miles on a hunt. Like you definitely have the chance of doing on like a dull sheep hunt, but you're climbing a lot more vertical feet, potentially up and down, checking different areas and, uh, fewer miles, but steeper and more brush. So talk about, uh, kind of the gear that you, uh, that you kind of go with, um, 
maybe some of your layering choices, your footwear choices, and then we'll uh, at the end here we'll we'll break into what you choose to shoot. Um, yeah, so there's always the potential of August. It tends to be one of the warmer months, and so there's always the potential to have 65, 70, 75 degree days, and that's that can be kind of brutal. Um, but I think what everyone has to prepare for is 62 and rainy, yeah. which means overnight low in the mid 50s and rainy, which means that, you know, if you get soaked either from sweat on the hike up or from rain on the hike up, and then you're not mobile, you're going to be, you're going to be losing a whole lot of, of warmth, a whole lot of, of body heat. And I've had a couple of times where, you know, you're trying to wait out the storm and you're not moving and, you know, feet go numb. Yeah, and right. if your feet have been numb enough, you kind of know, okay, well, this is, if this keeps going for a longer period of time, this ends up in a hypothermia or this can be something right. that could be serious. But, mm-hmm. you know, if you don't know and you start to get tired and, you know, my feet are numb, but it's okay. And, you know, that it's not that you should worry if your feet get numb that, you know, you're getting hypothermic or you're going to die, but you just kind of know where this road leads. I, yeah. I, I got to get up. I got I to gotta walk around. I can't stay. I know it's going to be miserable but I got to put the rain gear on. I got to get up. I got to move around, get that blood going. So yeah. um, being prepared for that. So you have to have uh, an insulating layer. Um, something that vapor wicking is, is really nice. Um, but you have to have rain gear that's going to keep you dry. And I prefer having rain gear that's going to um, make me maybe wet from sweat more than wet from rain. So if you get yeah. uh, cheaper rain gear that leaks, you're going to get soaked and it doesn't insulate really well. So you're mm-hmm. like, you're soaked from rain. That's not going to evaporate because it's going to bring your body temperature down. Right. Um, so if it's really, really, really wet, I will wear a Grundon's bibs and I'll have a Grundon's rain jacket. Um, so it's more of that, that, that rubber or PVC. So it doesn't breathe very well, but you're going to be dry. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. You can hike, uh, you can hike, you're going to sweat, but that is going to evaporate. You just stop. You know, and you can vent a little bit under a tree, you let some of that warmth out, maybe you, it, it evaporates, but you know, that's going to be dry. Mm-hmm. Um, once you, once you take it off, get in your tent, you're going to be in, in pretty good shape. Uh, I've had rain gear that, um, you know, they're light performance rain pants, but you just walk through all that brush that's getting rained on. Mm-hmm. And that just penetrates so much worse. If you're standing out in a rainstorm, your rain gear is probably going to be pretty good. But if you're yeah. walking through wet brush, it just is, it's a whole different ball game. So, right. It's like it's pushing um, it through the rain gear. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So a lot of that really good performance, it, you know, they, they want it to be waterproof and breathable, which, you know, it's way better than it used to be. But ultimately if it's going to be a really, really sloppy rainy hunt, I'm, I'm going Grindon's, Grindon's bibs and, uh, and jacket. Um, mm-hmm. I do have a nice pair of, uh, of rain pants, rain jacket, and then, um, uh, fleece, um, merino wool uh hoodie uh-huh um good pair of hunting pants that are comfortable insulate just uh just a little bit um if it is going to be warm i like taking just kind of a, a a thin pant so you don't sweat nearly as much on the way up if it's not going to rain then i'll still bring rain pants regardless just in right, case right right um, but some of those um sitka and uh stone glacier make some really nice thin um kind of hiking pants you yeah. can teach in them too so it's not like you're you know, just, just a hunting pant. It's kind of right. a, a pretty versatile light pant. So you right. don't sweat mm-hmm. as much getting up there. Right. But then it's, you know, going to repel the bugs when you get to the top. Cause I mean, I, I don't know who would hunt in shorts, but I'm sure some people would because it's too hot. <laughs> yeah. Um, but not, not in Alaska. <laughs> right. right. <laughs> yeah. 
your, your rain pants, uh, rain jacket um, are pretty important. Uh, change of socks is nice because if you get a lot of moisture in the boots, mm. I go uninsulated boots just because you're going to be moving a whole lot. And if you wear some nice socks, um, but once your feet get wet, those hot spots are just going to start rubbing really, really bad. So yeah. having a change of, of socks is really nice. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah. yeah. Have you ever, I know for sake of weight and bulk, it might not be a great idea, but have you ever found it or tried like bringing both sets of rain gear, like using the rubber to get through that lower thick brush and then having something a little more breathable for when you're just trekking around up top? One of the, the nice things about, and I know for, for a lot of the, uh, a lot of my, my friends that hunt up and down uh, Southeast Alaska is that we can check the weather. And a lot of these hunts are a day or two. Um, okay. lots, it's a lot of weekend type stuff. And gotcha. so you're not doing the miles that you guys put in for sheep and whatnot. I mean, you're, you're looking for d- d- this 10 day weather window. So you have to plan for 10 days. Whereas we can, we can look at the weekend and think, all right, it's going to take me from, from house to, to mountaintop about five, six hours. Okay. Uh, yeah. what's the weather going to be that night? What's it going to be in the morning? And then when we come back, so we're planning for a shorter period of time. So we can make that decision and say, Hey, this is going to be a Grundens. Uh, right, a gotcha. grunge trip or you know what this is going to be regular rain gear it's going to be fine okay um and so that can kind of be your gauge and that's the really nice fortunate thing and some people do stay out longer uh, three four or five days but yeah uh for the most part you know you it's kind of a weekend warrior type thing or you can yeah. come back and you can kind of recharge you can you yeah. know figure stuff out but right yeah um, the weather window also you know you're looking at at the water if you're taking your boat out somewhere and if you're anchoring in a cove you got to you got to be worried about that because the weather changes and you're dragging anchor all of a sudden you're up on the rocks and so yeah it can still be pretty nice hunting wise mm-hmm. but if the wind picks up and you're trouble there so that's there's a lot of things that that make the the hunts uh typically shorter than some of the stuff you're doing up there right right yeah um two questions have you tried several different types of waterproof slash breathable laminate rain gear and what do you like that that um out of the stuff that you might have tried so far um, and then, uh, for insulation, um, do you tend to lean toward down or synthetic? Um, I've, let's see, I've had a couple of different brands of, of rain pants, uh, outdoor research, uh, made a good brand. I had a mm-hmm. sit compare. Um, but I think anything that comes to Alaska, you think there's going to be a, it's not going to be the last pair of rain pants you're going to buy. Mm-hmm. And so it's just a matter of how many seasons you get out of it. So yeah. I'm not disappointed after a couple of years, if, if there's a tear or something like that, it's like, well, yeah, the, the terrain is, it's, it's your hard on gear. You know, right. some people mm-hmm. will, they'll test gear in Alaska, which means that, okay, so for your 10 day caribou hunt, it right. survived. Right. Awesome. Great. Yeah. You know, and right. that could be a good indicator that, yeah, this is some pretty stinking good stuff, but we're going to abuse it. I'm not trying to save my gear necessarily. I'm, I'm, I'm hunting. So yeah, you're there to use um, it. when I go through a couple of different pairs of pa- pants, you know, that I liked the, uh, uh, the Sitka ones I had, they got blown out. That doesn't mean that they were bad, mm-hmm. you know? So I think if, if you, you can't really go wrong. I don't think if you go with your, your big brands, your, uh, Kuyu, Sitka, Stone Glacier, that that's your upper end technology that's going to be really good. I think as mm-hmm. long as you stay away from frog togs, you'll, you'll be in pretty good shape. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I've, I've been through a couple of those pairs and I haven't really liked one pair more than the other. I currently have a pair of, of stone glacier and I'm pretty excited to use those. And yeah, you know, I'm, I'm never going to use the term bomb proof cause you know, they're just not, right, right, you know, right, it's going right, to be, right. it's going to be good. But a lot of times it's, it's good 
it's the newest technology, but it's not, it's not bombproof. Mm-hmm. Right? And that's okay. It's okay to say, right. Hey, this, you're going to have this, these pants for a couple of years, you know, you might have to buy a new pair, but mm-hmm. good on you because you've been using them. So, right. Exactly. Um, and then, uh, you say insulation. Um, yeah. I don't know. I have, uh, uh, down, um, I have a synthetic puffy jacket, but I have a down sleeping bag. Yeah. Okay. And I don't know. I haven't, I bought my sleeping bag this year and it's the first sleeping bag I've bought in I think 14 or 15 years. So I don't go through a lot of like that sort of gear a lot. Mm -hmm. This is my sleeping bag. If I'm a little bit chilly, I'll just put some clothes on. Um, It was never important to me to upgrade or really change that until this point. I'm like, yeah, let's, let's, let's let's address this one here. So Mm -hmm. um, I haven't been through enough to really be able to compare and I haven't tested gear and say, okay, synthetic is better goose or, or, or down is better. So, um, uh, again, if they both exist for good reason. Mm-hmm. So that's going to mm-hmm. be a personal preference thing. Right, right. Uh, can I ask you what bag you ended up deciding on? Um, I got the Stone Cl- uh, Stone uh, Stone Glacier Chilkoot 15. Okay, okay. excellent. Yeah, yeah that, that's it's a really good bag. Yeah, it's got that hydrophobic treated down. Um, yeah, we, we've talked a little bit about different types of down on the show before, so we mm-hmm. won't get into that. But yeah, I, I think you'll be happy with that bag. Those... Uh, those seem to be definitely in the in the upper end of the industry quality as far as down sleeping bags go, for sure. Yeah, and I I previously had a marmot and loved it, and mm-hmm. I was looking, you know, at the a comparable marmot now is pretty close in price. And so the nice thing too wasn't that well because this is a hunting bag and it's going to make you shoot better. They're going to charge <laughs> you know one hundred and fifty two hundred dollars yeah. more, which sometimes you know you, you see that it's like why why is this marked up so much? Like why? just because it's got a different name on it. Like yeah. what, what are we doing here? Yeah. But you yeah. know, the markup totally exists so much. So it was nice to also see that. Um, and then one of the things I really like about Stone Glacier is that they, they were a pack company first. Like, let's get this pack right. Yeah. And yeah. then they moved to something else. It wasn't just, Hey, we started out and here's 15 products. You know, exactly. it's like, right. we're going to, we're going to really do this pack really, really well. Exactly. Then we're going to move on to the next thing. And we're going to do this well. Um, mm-hmm. I think they called themselves or they refer to themselves like, as a small and nimble company, mm-hmm. which I think is a great way to describe yourself yeah. as we can do, let's do a couple of things really, really well. Right. And I think that really shows in their products. And yeah. um, that's not to say that Kufaro isn't good or anything else, but I mean, there's the amount of gear that we have at our disposal. It's unbelievable. That's yeah. why we can have these arguments and these conversations about which bag is better, which whatever is better, because sure. They're all so stinking good. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. Frank Glasser had his pack board and wool. You know? <laughs> right, right. I mean, come on. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. I, I love that you brought him up a couple times now because he's actually like one of my personal heroes yeah. as far as like Alaskan <sighs> yeah. hunting goes. I mean, Me the, too. The, just the sheer toughness of that man. Yeah. yeah, we were talking about mosquitoes, right? When he was uh, he was cutting up those strips of moose, and yeah. he, he scratches the back of his neck, and he draws blood, yeah. and then his his neck swells to twice the size because that putrid yeah. uh, moose bacteria got oh, in man. there, and he reached back with a razor to cut it to try to release uh, release the tension yeah, or uh-huh. the, the swelling and then put some iodine in there and, and, and then walks 18 miles to Healy. I was going to say, yeah, and then yeah. crawls his way to Healy 18 miles yeah. with nothing but he can't see because mm-hmm. his eyes were all swollen up yeah. using his dogs as bear protection. Yeah, I yeah. mean, that is just an amazing story. And yeah. the guy just has crazy resilience. 
Yeah. But uh, yeah, I, I've read that book a couple of times. I, I, I think my favorite part uh, as far as a bug story in that book was when he was talking about the traveler that uh, that went oh. to, he, he tied his clothes up and went to throw them across a river and his clothes <laughs> didn't make it to the other bank. Went in the river, got washed away, and then so he skinny dipped across the river, swarmed in bugs, jumped out, and then ran to the nearest roadhouse. <laughs> yeah. And the lady saw him coming and slammed the door and locked him out while he's outside screaming because he's covered in mosquitoes. Yeah. Here you've got this naked guy out in the middle of nowhere. Golly. <laughs> you think about the bad luck day oh, that he had. Yeah. She thought he yeah. was crazy. No. <laughs> Unbelievable. Yeah, as a different breed of people. So yeah. I was going to ask you, um, you mentioned the rain gear and stuff. Mm-hmm. What would you say, excluding that, what would you say is, is like a must that people should check if they're going to come down to that part of the state? Because I mean, it is an absolute rainforest down there. So I mean, rain, yeah. rain gear is definitely paramount. Is, is there anything else that, you know, is, is absolutely necessary that they should double check that they have before trying a hunt like that i think a a means to get warm i think would be would be really important and sometimes that's i mean you carry waterproof matches but that doesn't necessarily mean you can actually start a fire Mm -hmm. so i think having some knowledge about you know how you where you can find stuff that's going to be able to burn um you know you cutting up some little uh some some bark from a spruce tree to use the pitch to help get stuff good like that sort of knowledge and just like something in your kit that can get you warm again if need be because you know hypothermia happens all all different times of the year especially when you add water um that's that's a huge thing i it provides some comfort too um i don't know you want to say like an in reach for that safety and that you know whatever too right. but then you know we're telling frank, frank glasser stories that, you know, <laughs> right, right. um I, I think I think the mental state that you have to have, and I think it's pretty consistent with any hunt, whether you're, you know, on hunting up north in Brooks Range for caribou or, or sheep or down here um, in southeast Alaska, you just got to have that mental piece to where when that misery kicks in, what's going to happen to you? And we all know that that shock is, is the thing that kills people. It's the unpreparedness. Mm-hmm. It's, you know, the arrogance, that sort of stuff. So, yeah. Um, if there's something that you can bring to kind of calm the mind a little bit, I know some people will download a couple of movies on their phone so they can watch, you know, a, a movie in the tent while they're trying to wait out the fog or, yeah. um, I don't know, some, something comfort, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. something that, that can keep you warm, something that can keep you going, I think is an important thing to, yeah. um, to have, you know, and I think in, in, in some cases, the most important piece of gear is something that you don't end up bringing. Yeah. Um, but it, a lot of times it's something very simple, uh, a, a head net, you know, could be, uh, would have been huge for, for a caribou or something like that. So, right. Right. Um, but, uh, a means to get warm, making sure that you have your matches and then some, um, lint rolled in a, an old toilet, uh, uh, container or something like that. So, uh-huh. um, fire. Yeah. Be good. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, for sure. How realistic is fire down there? Like 50, 50 or. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Like, that's another thing. You might be burning a whole bunch of calories. Hey, man, you just need to get off right. the mountain. Just, just don't right. stop. Just keep, yeah. keep moving. Get the heart pumping and yeah. get off the mountain. Um, you know, that was part of the things. You know, the the curriculum on on Prince of Wales growing up. You know, I did all my schooling in in Klawak and 
Yeah, we did survival trips at fifth yeah. grade and sixth grade, and you just kind of knew. And we just made fires in the in the woods. We'd go out and just hang out. So we just kind of knew those sort of skills that were really important. So right. Um, but even now, like it's been raining for you know last couple of days off and on. It's it's going to be hard to find stuff to really make a fire. Right. Um, you might be able to get something that kind of smolders, but then adding more to it. You're just not going to have a whole bunch of stuff um, laying around. Mm -hmm, Um, You watch a lot of those films. And I love love the idea of being able to set a nice fire during your Wyoming elk hunt. And, (laughs) you know, sit around it with your buddies. Yeah. Yeah. You know, (laughs) because you've got all this this super, super, super (laughs) dead, dry uh, tinder around, yep. you know, and so you just kind of dig it out or, you know, if, if, if it's underneath a tree and so you can wait out the snowstorm with this nice <laughs> fire. And I think, man, that's, that'd be cool. Yeah. One day, <laughs> one, one day, day. Right. must be nice. <laughs> all right, folks, we all know that one of the most common mishaps in hunting is damage to your rifle scope. Last year, I found the solution to that problem with the stealthy hunter rifle cover. It wraps around your scope and action securely to protect it from getting knocked off of zero or even severely damaged. Stealthy Hunter also has a glassing pad and a wide variety of supplements for the outdoorsman, such as protein powder, CBD products, turmeric, and gut health supplements. They also make a lightweight trauma kit weighing in at just 14 ounces that includes everything you need and nothing you don't for all of your backcountry medical emergencies. To shop all of their equipment and supplements, go to stealthyhunter.com and enter the discount code at checkout, the Northern Hunter, to save on your order today. All Stealthy Hunter equipment is proudly made in the USA. Well, I had I had a question kind of related to to something you'd mentioned, and we'll we'll tee this into what you would wanted to lead into with what you shoot mm-hmm. um so you'd mentioned you, you grew up on prince of wales island um and on prince of wales island there are no brown bears at all um yeah, yeah. It's, it's a black bear only area but on the on the mainland if you were to be hunting deer on the mainland um or in unit one there is the potential for brown bears um what's been your experience with the the density of them or the the awareness of them you should have going into a hunt like this um and how does that play into your your strategy at all if 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 at all i should say i'm trying to think what's the proper way to answer this um um, you know without seeing you guys you guys live live in alaska you guys have been out on, on hunts and so you're you're kind of aware of of what you need to do in certain situations to make sure that you're safe mm, yeah. and so if you are to say i don't really worry about them someone from down south would be like oh so i don't have to worry about them or you know right. you are you're being negligent and you are being uh, you know right. this is this right. is potentially dangerous for you to say not to worry about them but for alaska uh, it's just because we're naturally aware of them yeah, that's yeah. one of the things. It, it's it's a respect for them. I have I have an an absolute respect for them, mm-hmm. and in that respect, the fact that I don't really worry about black bears, that's not a matter of disrespect. That's you know, growing up here since I was five, and I've been fishing at the river, and I know that this black bear is not gonna like eat me. Yeah, you know, if I get yeah. far enough from my fish, he's gonna if if it's comfortable enough for him, he's gonna get closer. 
maybe, but I could probably run him off and say, Hey man, you know, these are my fish and he'll take off because he's <laughs> yeah, not right. looking for yeah. that. Right. right. Yeah. And just kind of brown bears through are different him. and I don't have a whole lot of experience with them. So I'm definitely a lot more worried, nervous, um, mm-hmm. uh, about those, but, um, the concentration of, of brown bears here is, is not, not very high. And, yeah. um, mm-hmm. especially this time of year, when you're starting to get some of the fish showing up in the creeks, as long as you're away from the creeks, you're in pretty good shape and you're making noise as you're hiking up. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the concentration of, of, of brown bears down here where I hunt is, is, is to the point where I don't bring bear spray. Right. Um, yeah. I have my rifle with me. So in case, you know, it could also be a black bear too, just because I'm not really worried about them doesn't mean that there's not a potential situation in which I separate a, a sow from the cubs. Mm-hmm. So, right. you know, you're aware, you respect them, but you're not allowing the potential of an attack or that fear dictate everything you do and, you know, right. keep you from, from hunting or enjoying the experience. Right. Well, and that's exactly why we, we bring this up on the show a lot. And, and cause we've talked about this on the show just with the three of us and, and, right. you know, any, any, a lot of guests that we've talked to that spend time in bear country, we've asked a pretty similar question and it's because we get a lot of questions to the show also about bear awareness and bear, you know, right. encounters and how do I, how do I focus this? And there seems, and, and it's very true for people that don't grow up around yeah. heavy bear uh, populated areas yep. that they have this, and I'll, I'll use this because I'm not in a, a shark infested area, but they, they yeah. see them like I see sharks. You right, know, it's like, right, right. like if you see one, it's just going to come at you and, and, and rip, your, rip your leg off. And, and it's just, you know, but if repeatedly, you know, kind of displaying that that's not the case yeah, it is, is important, I think. Um, mm. Have that respect have that awareness, um, go to Mo's article on the website and, uh, and read his perspective on, on bear awareness. But, um, I think for me personally, I look at it from this angle. If you spend 125 days diving per year off the coast of South Africa, spearfishing near a reef, (laughs) you're going to have more encounters with dangerous sharks than your average person. (laughs) Just because you read an article on the South African Times, I'm just making stuff up here, about, you know, only one in 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 uh, in a hundred thousand people is ever going to have a bad encounter with any kind of shark in their lifetime. Well, okay. How many of these people are spending this amount of time in the water. That's true, right? So for me, I kind of equate that to bear encounters. Mm -hmm. Yes, you have a pretty low chance of your average hunter that spends maybe two weeks a year in the field, maybe that guy only has like a 2% chance Mm -hmm. in his lifetime of two weeks of hunting per year of ever having an adverse encounter with any kind of bear, black, brown, or grizzly, right? But for people that are spending a lot more time in the field per year, especially in a place like Montana or Wyoming or Idaho or Alaska, Mm -hmm. or certainly a lot of parts in Canada, your chances go up exponentially. Oh, yeah. Um, Just like if you're if you're hiking with uh, with a rod sticking out the top of your backpack on a mountain peak in a lightning storm, you've got a pretty good (laughs) chance of getting struck by lightning Compared to most people, mm, right? Because yeah. you, you're putting yourself in that position. And as hunters, yes, you are putting yourself in a little bit higher chance of, 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 of a risk of that kind of situation going down. But still, 
understanding that the vast majority of bears want nothing to do with you. Absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. And it, it's it's the old saying of, well, they're more scared of you than you are of them. Well, I'm not 100% convinced of that every time, but it's just instinctual for them by nature. They might not even be scared of you. They just know that they don't like how you smell. Right. You don't belong there, and they just don't want anything to do with you. Might, yep. not, might not even be that they're scared of you. It, you're just an unfamiliar object to them. Right. And, well, and that's what I mean with the the impression of them. I think a lot of yeah. people think they're like these foaming at the mouth, just right, constantly right. confrontational creatures, which yeah. they're, they're just not. They're, no. they're just out there living their best no. life, man. Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I exactly. think the story of uh, Timothy Treadwell, it's a, a crazy story. If you guys yeah. read Grizzly Mason, <laughs> right. yeah, the fact that he was able to, to live with the bears for as long as he did. Right. When you look at the story, you, you you look at the fact that there were he had never been there during a time when the resource was limited. Mm-hmm. He never stayed that late before, and so like it's during the summer, and, and there's this weird thing that's hanging out with us. That okay, he's not a threat, right? So sometimes there there he had some footage of of when they were getting maybe a little bit aggressive, and the, I mean the cojones on that guy, you know, but, or <laughs> you know maybe he was delusional or whatever. But it wasn't yeah. until the conditions changed. It wasn't until um, there wasn't a lot of fish in that other river that the other bears come. So you had an, mm-hmm. um, an unusual concentration of bears in that area. Plus it was getting, getting later in the year and they're just packing on calories because they know and that sense of urgency has kicked in. Yeah. So everything can work. The program was, was scary and terrifying and, and ridiculous and delusional and, you know, a, a bad example, but it didn't, end up costing him until the conditions changed and that was him being a little bit later and that's right you know being more aware in certain conditions okay um this is getting toward later in the year this is a concentration there's 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 fish in the river i need to be extra careful here because this is pack on calorie time this is bear concentration time this is yes. early on in the year when it's no big deal so i think being aware of of the ecology and how things work too and and what uh, what variables might uh, might become more important as things go on mm-hmm. is an important thing to yeah. keep in mind too it, that's that's a solid point so yeah. is there anything you carry specifically for bear protection um a shout that is a lot less <laughs> like masculine than i <laughs> hope it would be, you know, you hope that it would be like a hey but sometimes it's kind of a eh, eh, hey, you know. <laughs> no, I, I will say that um, I, I was I was I was fishing uh, I was fishing this this creek and I had a couple uh, fish on the shore and there was a bear that was in the in the rapids and he kind of he wasn't having much luck and he looked over at me and he started uh, popping his jaw and then um, there was about a it was it was a fifteen or so foot. Uh, creek and i was fishing this elbow and it was a, it was a really deep elbow and so the bear started charging but i just said no and i yelled at it and i think part of it was knowing that okay if he does decide to come over he's going to have to swim for at least a couple seconds and they can cover that ground pretty quickly but it is a little bit deeper mm-hmm. and so if he's serious and he gets in the water i am out of here but i did yell no and i was stern and i held the ground and he just you know he it was a fake out you know he didn't even yeah. get the water and then he just Bluff went back charge. to kind of doing his thing so yep. was that the right thing to do probably not you know i should have just you know gone away but i think there's something to say about you know standing the ground mm-hmm. and not looking like prey and going back to the treadwell story was mm-hmm. that that bear came back for uh his girlfriend because likely because she was making those uh wounded animal um noises right yeah that, the, that predatory the, the, response the which is horrible reaches. and tragic yeah um so i think 
that, that can be an important thing too. You just hope in that situation, you do the right thing. Sometimes it's, it's irrational, but it ends up kind of being the right thing. Right. There's yeah. that, um, there's a lady in, uh, Juno who, uh, a black bear snatched her dog. And so she ran up to the bear and punched it. That's the wrong thing to do, <laughs> but you know, in that moment it worked. And so you can just kind of hope that in that moment you end up doing the thing that, you know, ends up being the right thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah, for sure. So I guess this would be a good time to ask the question. What do you carry for a rifle? Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a 270. I shoot a 130 grain. Um, I like the Hornady ELDX. Um, I got to a point where I was buying a lot of the, the, just the uh, cheapest ammo, cheapest ammo, cheapest ammo. But then after you you shoot to a point, you start to think, all right, well, maybe maybe my rifle does like ammunition uh, better than some others. I think mm-hmm. there's a temptation for us to want to blame our scope, want to blame our rifle, want to blame, uh, our ammunition when mm-hmm. a lot of times it's ourselves. And I, I do mm-hmm. like blaming Absolutely. myself because yeah. I, if, if it's my fault and that's something that I could fix, that's something that I can work on. It's a skill. I'm not at the mercy of my scope and everything else. So, um, once I feel that I have things pretty dialed in, then I can start looking at, all right, well, because I'm shooting pretty well, because I know what I'm doing, because I have a good routine that I can start looking at, you know, yeah. maybe, maybe this is, is a, is a better, uh, better bullet for, um, or, uh, better round for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like that. It's a little bit more expensive, but, uh, my, my rifle seems to like it. Um, my rifle's a, a Savage 116, so it's not at, you know, not an upper, upper rifle whatsoever. Right. Um, yeah. It's kind of a starter kit that came with a Weaver, uh, scope, which I liked and it was, you know, uh, until you have some experience, you don't really know what else you would want in a gun. Right. Um, same right, thing yeah. with, I, I related to fishing a whole lot. Your first time you're fly fishing, you fish with this rod and you don't know any different. And then you fish with a premium rod. You think, oh, I like this rod because of this. Or I wish right. I, I wish I had a rod that could do this. Yeah. Uh, same thing with glass. You know, you, you get a nice pair of binoculars and then you see one that is better at low light and you think, oh, okay. Yeah. This, right. this is this is exactly. the extra five hundred thousand dollars. So this is lighter. This is better glass. Um, it, that morning glassing session, I'm going to be a lot. E- it's going to be a lot easier to see certain things. So, right, yeah, um, for sure. But I think well, it's rather than just throw a whole bunch of money at stuff and not really understand what you're getting. Yeah. Um, and so I'm glad that I've kind of eased my way into this. Yeah. Absolutely. You, you know, and that's one big mistake a lot of people make coming into things. I think is diving in to these the most expensive rifles they can get mm-hmm. without having hardly any range time yeah you know and, and all of us here started with cheaper rifles mm-hmm. and cheaper glass and then upgraded as our skills got better as our realistic ranges got better as, right. as, as our needs changed right um we kind of just got something that got us out there yeah. and once we hit a point where it wasn't meeting our needs anymore then we upgraded right um right. And, and i think that's a really good good point to make and, and a lot of people they try to jump from having shot a rifle a couple times to buying like a two thousand dollar rifle, and, and I just think mm-hmm. that's there, there's a lot better things you could put that money towards yeah. in, in the beginning stages yep. of your kit um, than something like that. Agree. Because as you said, you can have the the fanciest, most accurate rifle in the world, but a lot of your shooting comes down to you. Mm-hmm. Um, it's your your shooting style, your form, your right. your knowledge, right. your control. You right. know how well you can control yourself in the moment. Yeah. Um, and and that 270 i'm sure that's a phenomenal deer gun um yeah, that's you know, great that, that that 
the the eldx is, is a little soft for what i like to shoot up here at, at some of the bigger animals like the moose and whatnot mm -hmm. um but for a deer cartridge um I, i'll say this i've rarely seen factory ammo fly as good as eldx's do mm -hmm. um they they do have phenomenal accuracy um so for that alone i would say if you're shooting something that's it's purpose driven for yeah. um mm -hmm. it's absolutely worth yeah worth i the used extra money. Uh, one, 150 grain or the the 145 for uh for bears too yeah, and it's, yeah. Uh, this is another thing with um personal preference mm -hmm. um is how are you going to take down that animal some people are advocates for just get a big animal and you know break the shoulder oh right, other people right, are like right, you know right, just right. You know, my, my, uh, my, my buddy's wife, um, her dad was a guide in the, in the Yellowstone area. And so she grew up shooting everything elk and, and everything else with a 243 because it was impressed <laughs> upon her that you shoot the heart. You don't shoot the animal. You don't shoot the side of the deer or the mm -hmm. elk or the whatever. You shoot the heart and that sort of the aim small, miss small. Right, exactly. You know, that makes a huge difference. And so, yeah. you know, if you're intimidated by the, the animal that you're trying to take and all of a sudden you're looking at, oh, this is such a huge animal, like it's a bigger heart, you know, or right, it's, it's yeah. bigger lungs than you were looking at before. So if you look at it like that and you obviously want to have an appropriate um, uh, cartridge to go mm -hmm. with it, going right. back to, to Frank Glasser, what did he shoot? He shot a, a, an OT6 <laughs> is what he recommended yeah. for. Um, but he used a, was a 22 Swift for a lot of animals <laughs> yeah, too? Yeah, 220 yep. Swift, yeah. <laughs> yeah, 220, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, he actually, I, he, again, he, but, he did, I think he killed a grizzly with that, didn't he? I, I, yeah. I think it, it took 11 rounds, but yeah, he did it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, and then, I that's, I, we, we get in that, I think, a lot here because we watch, we watch films and this person, this really, really good hunter took this really nice gun of this caliber yeah. on his caribou or on her you know, whatever hunt. And so mm -hmm. we think, oh, I'll just get that. And it'll be like the same. Well, it's not because right. that is a weapon in their hands and it's a $3,000 thing in mine. Right. Um, and archery too, you know, you see because Absolutely. Cam Haynes is shooting, uh, killing a balloon at a hundred yards. That's yeah. him, man. You buy the same bow, like it might not be the right bow for you. Hoyt might not be for you. It's right. a nice bow. It's an expensive bow, but you know, maybe there's a different brand that, that feels good. So we can really get caught up in that. And I think in the world of, of sponsors and sponsorships and, and everything like that, it's, this is why I choose this gun and I prefer this gun. And I think it means a whole lot more when you have these people who have been with the same brand for a long time. Um, I think that matters a lot. It's not, right. mm -hmm. um, Hey, I got a better deal. So I'm going to switch brands like, Oh, Correct. Savage, Savage, Savage. Oh, Christensen, Christian, you know, right. and just kind of moving yeah. between all these things based on <laughs> right. the deal right. that I got. Yeah. So when, when some people have been wearing Sitka for a long time because they like it and you look at the pants and they're faded, you know, they, yeah. they, I wear this a lot. Right. There's that indication they've been wearing this for a long time because they like it mm -hmm. or the rifle or the bow or the whatever. And that speaks a lot. So when you're looking for, you know, uh, who should I be impressed by or who should I be influenced by? Right. I think if we look at those things that we can give us a bigger clue into uh, whether it's hype or whether this high performing hunter uses this high performing weapon yeah mm -hmm. i i totally agree with you I, I i just after you mentioned the uh the rifle and cartridge setup that you uh, that, that you're running there just to give folks an idea the hornady box velocity for a 270 winchester with a 24 inch barrel with a 145 grain eldx is still 2970 oh yeah which good. is cooking out there really really quick yeah. for a 145 definitely a little bit on the heavier side for a 270 
Mm-hmm. Um, you can get 150s and, and I think maybe some 160 grain range if you hand load. Um, but for the vast majority of it, 130 grain bullet is kind of your bread and butter. That's what the 270 started with when, mm-hmm. when that cartridge was actually originally designed um, back in the earlier part of the 1900s. Um, but yeah, for a 145 grain bullet with that high of a BC like the ELDX has, still getting that kind of velocity, that gives you really, really good versatility. Yeah. Um, and mm-hmm. you mentioned that you shoot bears with that too. Did you kill your brown bear with that cartridge as well? Uh, and I had an Ot six with a 220 for that one. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Gotcha. I also really like the uh, the Federal Fusion for uh, yeah. 270 and the 130 grain. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also like my Alpine shots. I'm not sure if I've shot. I think my longest shot in the Alpine's been about 220 yards. Wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I was just a lot ask of them what... have been have between you know 60 and 150, just because. I, I don't know. I, it's not that I, I love the stock so much. I just think that, you know, I, I like to be within my effective range. There are a couple of times when you can, mm-hmm. you see this nice deer from a long way away, but you know, I don't want to miss. I think I'm more, right, right. I don't right. know if I'm panicked or anything like that, but like, this needs to get closer. Let's get closer. A lot of times sure when you, you do, do cover, right. if you do get to that spot and you pop up all yeah. of a sudden you're right there. And so you're able to make a, mm-hmm. a, a nice, right. nice short shot. But I know some, right. some people who are excellent marksmen, and they mm-hmm. shoot, you know, long distances. Yeah, but, I, was, I would say, does the terrain lend itself to yeah. to long distance if, if you're capable and and ethical at that at those distances? Yeah, and yeah. That's uh, some of my buddies that I've had on the podcast talking about sheep. You know, you have to have a really good effective range mm-hmm. because you don't have the texture that we have here. Um, you can really noiselessly make stocks in the Alpine here because you're dealing with that vegetation that coats everything. Right, um, yeah. and so if you are, you know, kind of you know, sliding your feet through that, it's still going to sound, you know, like something else. You're not going to have a whole bunch of rocks that are just falling down right? and you're not going right. to be exposed. You can, you can pop back or you can get into this little bit of a, uh, um, texture or you can maneuver around. And so you can, you can use yeah. that mountain to your advantage. There's a lot more of that than there is up there when you're just totally exposed. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I guess kind of a subsidiary question to that then, have you ever considered bow hunting these deer early season? I, yeah, I've considered, I've considered, I'm going to this year, but I, I just, I, I want to get that first one in, um, in, in the bank, uh, in the freezer. Mm-hmm. Um, and then some of the terrain, it's, I get nervous because up top again, it's, it's nice and it's open, but then once if, if you, if you, even if you get a good shot and the thing runs 20 yards, 30 yards, uh-huh. falls slides your recovery could be really tough right and yeah. because you can't see where it goes it dis- disappears in the woods goes off this cliff whatever i really am, am concerned potentially about um about losing it and so that kind of shakes the confidence a little bit so i shouldn't go up there terrified to lose a deer right. because that's not the mindset you need to have it's like right. oh man i hope that i did that so i i uh, I'm going to take it up there and I'm, you know, you just got to put yourself in a situation to get a good shot. And then in that moment, worry or think, okay, maybe this isn't going to work out, uh, right. but not talk yourself out of stuff. So, right. um, I really like rifle hunting. Um, I like bow, uh, archery in the, in the rut. And, um, so yeah. uh, after the first one. Well, uh, after the first we'll there. <laughs> <laughs> and that's a good point. Cause then the pressure's kind of off. You've got one in the freezer, right. you got a little bit of fresh meat, 
Yeah, yeah. it's kind of. Well, I, I was going to say that's kind of the same way that I've always approached deer hunting. Uh, I I've never even tried bow hunting. I I know one year I I brought a bow down to deer camp down mm-hmm. there in southeast. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it and it was, man, it's got to have been four or five years ago now. It, it was after I'd been doing it for several years. I'd shot a number of deer, and I thought, well, hey, you know, maybe I I guess I bring my bring my uh, my uh my compound bow this year it, it was the first year that i've been shooting a compound um and i thought you know it'd, it'd be fun to call a to call a deer in close and then shoot it with a bow and mm-hmm. and uh, that ended up being just the worst weather year i've ever had it <laughs> rained nonstop every day and uh the, the brush just seemed extra thick and more mm-hmm. leaves still hanging on even late in november like that kind of mm-hmm. tail end of the rut there um i think i went that year right before thanksgiving and uh the bow never even left camp, man. Mm-hmm. And uh, I I shot three deer, I think, that year, but I shot them all with a rifle. And just because of the conditions and, you know, I I, I grew up shooting a bow and that there's a specific place for me where I really still do enjoy bow hunting. Mm-hmm. But uh, if it comes down to, um, I, I mean, obviously rifle hunting is always going to be, for the most part, more effective. You, you're you're going to have right. a higher chance of success of of if you define success as the kill, which for a lot of our hunts is you bring home meat, that's right. what defines success. Yeah. You're and uh, feeding your family with that. Yeah, yeah. And, and and when the conditions and the brush and everything just kind of piles up, I guess I can just say I'm not that dedicated to it. Mm-hmm. I, I'm totally okay with just, you know what? It looks miserable out there. It's yeah. foggy. I've got to climb half a mountain today to even get to my spot through the Devil's Club and through the Alder Tunnels, and <laughs> I don't mm-hmm. feel like catching my arrows on everything on the way up the hill, so I'm just going to yeah. take my rifle, and yeah. I'm totally okay with that, and I haven't brought my bow back down there since, <laughs> and yeah. uh, I personally, I don't see it happening anytime soon again either, and, yeah. and you know, like you said, it's not that I don't enjoy rifle hunting. I love it. Mm-hmm. It's an absolute riot. I don't feel like I have any more fun necessarily bow hunting. It, it's it's a different challenge. Um, yeah. But for me, I mean, the, the, the most bow hunting I've done here in the last several years now has just been limited to, to just shooting bears over a bait with it. Right, yeah. Which is a lot yeah. more controlled environment. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, yeah I, um, I took my bow out and I had a couple misses. One, I, I came to full draw, but you don't realize how like everyone knows that it's, that it's very dense, uh, brush down here. But when you're archery hunting, it's so much more amplified because there are times when you can see vitals exposed and this is not an unethical shot with a rifle because you're going to have a flat trajectory. You're going to be, you know, it's, you're going to be fine, but the trajectory of an arrow at, you know, 30 yards, there's, there's stuff Mm -hmm. to consider and you could be, you know, nicking stuff. So there are a couple of times where I've drawn on something and then it's, it's right there, but just, it's not clear. And then it takes off. And there was another, right. I'd sat down and I'd called and, uh, it just been just downpour. So I was in my, uh, Grundens, but I was just still soaked and just Mm -hmm. wet and cold. And I'd sat there and I would sat there. And so my hands were getting numb because you have your gloves on, but if you're not wearing rubber gloves, they're still going to get wet. So even if you're wearing Gore-Tex or whatever, if you have yeah. your hands down, the water is going to run down the sleeve right. unless you have right. your, your, your glove tucked into the sleeve. So my mm-hmm. hands were wet. Everything was wet. Yeah. Um, and then I had my, my quarter zip zipped all. So my face was, was mostly covered and, and a deer comes out and man, I could hardly feel my, my hands. And it wasn't that it was that cold, but it was 37 and rainy. And so like you're stinking oh, cold. Yeah. I couldn't really feel my hands. And when I right. drew back to get my anchor, I couldn't really feel my anchor. There was a little bit of extra cloth because i had that zipped up and i'd never shot with that like that before i'd never right. shot with 
you know, if I have everything zipped up and I can't feel uh, my anchor through, through the fabric. So I, I missed by a foot in front of it at 40 yards just because I, I wasn't lined up right. You know, everything was cold, right. couldn't feel it. And I thought, man, that is a whole different thing I hadn't even thought of. And I'd never practiced that. I right. you know, practice sometimes kind of in the rain. But man, when your hands are cold and, and you know, your legs are cold and you stand up from sitting yeah. for a while, like yeah. nothing is stable, nothing is the same. And I thought, man, that's, <laughs> yeah. I'm glad that I airmailed that thing because right. that had all the makings of a, you know, horrible shot. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I haven't heard of guys that, that, uh, that get to that situation and the, their animal that they're trying to shoot comes out and they've been sitting there for long enough and they're just freezing cold. Like you said, it's not freezing, but it's cold mm-hmm. and they're soaking wet and your muscles stiffen up and they can't even draw their bow back. Yeah. You know, they, they just, they just can't even muster the strength. So, you know, good yeah. on you for not uh, touching one off mid draw either. Cause that's something else to consider. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. We're like well, standing it, up and passing out or something like that. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and kind of even throwing back to, you know, what he was talking about with, uh, with the exposure, you know, making sure you have, have a way to warm up. Right. A lot of people that, that live in the warmer parts of the, of the country don't realize that you, you don't have to be at freezing no. or below freezing to get hypothermic. You can get no. hypothermic in 60 degrees oh, if yeah. it's cold and, and, and rainy, yeah. if you're wet. Um, yeah, it doesn't take a whole lot to be, you know, it's, yeah. it's more the long-term exposure that does right. it than anything yeah. else. Mm-hmm. Right? And so. those, those hot hands don't work if they get really wet. So that's yeah. another thing too. You can't right. put those into wet gloves and people talk about, um, if your boots get wet, put those in your boots and they'll be dry in the morning. Like, no, they won't be. If, if you sweat, if your feet sweat and your boots are damp from sweat, then mm-hmm. yeah, you could put those in there and your boots are going to be dry in the morning. But if your boots are soaked, from walking through muskeg or whatever, if you put those in there, they will be just as wet as they were the night before and you'll be at a pair of hot hands. So right, right. Yeah, that, mm-hmm. um, that's not the, well, just bring hot hands. It'll be fine. Like it won't. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, so a couple things to add here. So if you don't have the ability to, uh, to dry anything out, say that it's just totally soaked, you, you, uh, you don't have a fire going, you don't have any kind of a like an ultralight teepee slash wood stove set up uh, mm-hmm. um, in, in, in a hunt like this, um, which most folks don't run. Um, I know somebody this year that's going to be trying that. Well, uh, <laughs> I'm curious to see the results on that. <laughs> but, uh, and, and so there's a company out there that makes ultralight boot dryer fans, mm, yeah. Gra- uh, Graxol. And uh, they're, they're very, very lightweight. And they plug into your battery bank and then just blow air into your boots and then allow some air circulation in there. Well, that works one of two ways. If you have a nice dry day where you have some sun and you can set those out in the sun to, to allow that to blow dry air and circulate dry air into your boots, it works that way. And then it also works even better if you have a heated tent where mm-hmm. you can hang those boots up on the top of your tent and use the heat from the wood stove to do that. That yeah. dries your boots out one of two ways with those boot dryer fans. Um, another trick that I learned about, um, about trying to get the majority of the water out, not all of it, but some of it, uh, because I've spent a lot of time hunting that coastal environment, is bring some kind of like a, like a little um, ShamWow cloth and, uh, and, mm. and keep that in like a little dry bag in your pack. They don't weigh anything, but just bring a couple of those and then at night, if you don't have any kind of a heat source, you can't put those boot fans in there to, to get any um, warm, dry air into them. You can put those little dry microfiber cloths in there 
let them sit there overnight, and that will actually draw a lot of the water out of the boot. Mm. It's not going to be the best thing. It's not going to work 100% um, successfully to dry the whole boot out, but it's going to draw a lot of it out, so it's not just going to be completely sop and wet in the morning. Yeah. Um, and then one more thing that I'll mention about getting hypothermic is a lot of people, um, I, I, I would probably say that the, over half of the folks that hunt in the backcountry have a down sleeping bag, mm-hmm. which is totally fine. You know, that, that's, that's personal preference. It's probably the most common fill option for sleeping bags. But um, you run into a problem when you climb into a down bag soaking wet at night. And then you sleep in that and you saturate the down and it doesn't really dry you out as well. And you're already getting into it freezing cold, right? Mm-hmm. So take your Nalgene and boil a couple of jet boils worth of hot water and pour it in your Nalgene bottle and then get into your bag and put that Nalgene bottle in between your thighs yep. and allow that external heat source and, and, and having that bottle on the inside of your thighs, you know, you have your main arteries going up your uh, up. Um, up the inside of your legs there. Um, it'll warm you up for one thing. And I mean, at least for me in short order, whenever I have to do that, I'm always unzipping my bag within an hour because I'm just hot. Right. But it also helps um, to have that external heat source to help push some of that moisture out of the bag and push it through that insulation. Yep. And that works a little bit more efficiently than if you're just relying on your own body heat to push vapor through a downfill bag. Mm-hmm. So that, that's just a couple of things that I've tried and had work really well in those Southeast yeah. wet environments mm-hmm. if you don't yeah. have any kind of a heat source. Yeah. I, I feel like that's kind of a, an old timer trick that, that kind of took a break there for a while. Cause, yeah. cause I remember hearing about that when I was a kid, um, yeah. for the cold camping trips we'd go on mm-hmm. and, and then for probably two decades, I never heard anybody mention it. Oh, um, really? and, and even people looking at me like surprised when I would bring that up to them. Yeah. And then, uh, but yeah, it seems like a lot of people are doing that more often these days. Yeah. So, yeah, no, it, it, yeah, having the hot water, um, yeah. Nalgene bottle, um, really does make a big difference. It does. Yeah. So let's dive a l- little bit farther into deer before we change gears here. Um, for somebody that is, uh, a little inexperienced with hunting at, at that elevation and at that, in that kind of terrain. Um, go into a little bit about your, your stalking style and kind of the awareness of these deer, things to be careful of, things to be cautious of when you're, when you're putting a stalk on these deer, um, how how jumpy they are, things like that. If you're going to the, the biggest mistakes that I've made, one is not making a mental reference of what is around. So I see the deer and I just want to get out of its line of sight so it doesn't see me. Mm -hmm. And I, then I just guess as I'm making my stock, if I'm going up the, up the ridge or whatever, but you know, taking that second to think, okay, well he's, there's, there's three clumps of brush. Nope. There's four clumps of brush. It's the one that's here next to this rock. And so at least you're getting some idea of, of where it's at before you disappear. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and then also knowing that when you do kind of recheck where you're at, to be really careful about that because if you are coming over a ridge to look at that, you're going to be skylined unless you're a little bit, you know, stealth with it, like choose something to kind of, uh, if there's some brush around there, you can kind of go into the brush and maybe try to look through the brush rather than just stand up on the ridge or peek over the ridge. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I've made that mistake a couple of times. And so that's, that's a lesson that I've, that I've learned, you know, get those monuments figured out. 
Um, don't be in so much of a hurry, especially if they're betting or feeding, like they're pretty relaxed. They're hanging out. So I think, uh, rushing into a move, um, that can be a problem. So take your time, kind of see where you're at there. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also patience as you're going through, we talked earlier about, uh, there's going to be a doe, there's going to be another, another buck there. So I think how they respond to you will be important. So there've been times where, you know, you, you see a doe and there's, there's, there's nothing you can do. He's the, it's right there. It's staring right. at you. And so right. you just kind of, all right, well, see what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. And sometimes the doe will just hang out. Sometimes it'll jog off. Sometimes it'll, you know, bed back down. But if yeah. the buck can see how the doe reacts and if the doe reacts in a freaked out sort of manner, then that's going to put the buck in a little bit higher alert. So um, just know that there's going to be something in between or it could be a little forky on your way to a really nicer uh, deer in this other buck again how it responds is going to impact how that uh that buck is um there are times too where if you are in high concentrated areas like you're not going to survive that it's not going to the thing's going to take off if, if yeah. there's a doe that spooks then that thing's going to be gone too if you're in an area that isn't as um, high traffic doesn't get as much pressure, then they might be a little bit more tolerant. But uh, just have in the back of your mind that even if you even if you did get a long way back in there, mm-hmm. just be aware. Make 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 your note of where it's at. Um, take your time. What's going to be the stock? Can you get there? And then in route, you're going to see something. Um, and then you know when you get close, as with anything, you have probably a little more time than you think if you're really really nervous. But you probably don't have as much time as you think if you're super casual. Um, so it's <laughs> yeah. kind of like knowing how you respond to that moment, I think has been important. There have been times where I, I've looked at it. He's going to, he's going to go, he's going to go, he's going to go. And I, I get so worked up that I have to do this right now that I don't take the time to make sure I go through the fundamentals that I practice when I'm shooting my rifle. And mm. all of a sudden I, you know, it's the wild west and I'm just, you know, sending them um, <laughs> yeah. so just taking that moment to make sure it's a good shot because if you do only get good shot you know take the extra little bit to make sure that you have the breathing down make sure everything is settled make sure you're in good shape um yeah so i know just it's just fundamentals but just you know realizing that um knowing that and again you have a lot more texture down here and so really good stocks are are, are definitely capable and a lot more easy um, then a lot of your, your doll sheep type situations there. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. so yeah, just, just your fundamentals, staying calm, being yeah. smart. Um, wind is, wind can be a, a thing too. Um, I know a lot of the guys in like down South talk about thermals and have like whole classes on the thermals and the elk. Uh, so I think, well, that's a, when I was elk hunting down in Wyoming, I, I had to really pay attention to that cause they totally obey the thermals because that's how they survive. So um, I don't know a whole lot of people who really pay a lot of attention to thermals, uh, when they're uh, hunting here in Southeast. Um, so I know, yeah. but wind is always something, you know, if Absolutely. they can smell you, if they can see you, that's always something you should pr- be wary of, but, um, yeah, keep that in your pocket. Oh, good stuff. I got a couple of questions here for you, Jeff, just as, just that I thought of here as you were talking about that. Um, and this is kind of going back to what we were talking about earlier about size. But um, do you have any idea about antler growth from the time that we start hunting them beginning of August when season opens to when they turn hard horned? Um, um, middle of August is, is typically when I start to see the first bucks that are 
in the process of shedding the velvet or okay. even out of the velvet. Um, okay. mm. Trying to think. I don't believe that I've ever within the first week of August seen, unless it was maybe a forky or something like that, that had already, already shed the velvet or something like that. But for the most okay. part, yeah, you're, you're there within a week or so of being finished with that. And then by mid month, I've seen hard horned and, and shot some nice ones, but it can even be up into, you know, late August, but mid August is typically when they start to, you start to see some that are starting to shed it. Yeah. Yeah. So pretty much by the beginning of the month of, of August, when the season opens, if you shoot a buck, that's a nice big deer, you, you don't necessarily have to think that, man, had he been hard horned later in the season, he would have been a lot bigger. You know, it's, mm -hmm. it's not really a case situation like that. No, it's, it's not going to be a, a ton. And you know, those, those black tails, it's a lot more compact, uh, right. rack. And so right, right. a lot is, uh, is, you know, kind of your frame of reference. It's, it's, it's a lot right. smaller, um, when right. it comes to that, but yeah, I think I, I'm pretty comfortable shooting something in the, in early August and not worried about what it could have been. Cause right. you know, it's within a week or two and, and right. a guy like me is not going to pass up nice bucks very often. <laughs> right. So <laughs> right. that's a great way to lead into my second question there. What's, what caliber of buck are you looking to shoot? Like, are you going to shoot a nice, mature, um, somewhat full-framed forky buck, or are you looking for a buck with eye guards, or do you see a lot of three-by-threes with eye guards, or what's kind of the average that you see for like a good several-year-old mature deer? I don't really have the luxury to, to pick through very often. Um, it tends to be that, you know, when, when I'm going up um, for the opener, you know, it's, if there's something, something good there, again, it gets that, get that first one in the freezer. Mm -hmm. Um, you start passing up bucks in, in a, in an area that doesn't have a whole high concentration of it. And you've even seen in some high concentration areas in Southeast where people, they used to, you know, sort through, sort through, sort through. And now it's like, yeah, man, this is genetics wise or what population is wise. You know, this is about as good as I can expect. And so, yeah. you, know, you know, people are taking some of those nice bucks, but you know, if, if it's a nice looking and there are a couple areas that they don't seem to develop anything more than just being like a really thick based forky. It's weird that yeah. there's nothing else, yeah. you know, yeah. but that's just kind of what the genetics are in some other sure. areas that's, they just develop in a really, really nice three by three, super, so just awesome. And then other times it's a nice symmetrical four by four. So, um, yeah, kind of based on where I'm hunting or where I have to hunt because of the opener, because of time, because of weather that kind of adjusts my expectations. But for the most part, you know, as long as it's a, is it's a solid frame because um, they're pretty small animals, you know? So if you're mm -hmm. using a tag on a, right. you know, you're getting 27 pounds of meat. It's like, well, <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, you know, and it, it, it sounds uh, trophy hunter ish or this or that, but you know, I, I put in some work. I, I would like something and I'm okay with, with getting a nice bodied body deer, but um, you know, it's, it's always nice to shoot a nice three by three, four by four eye guards, but right. Um, yeah. Yeah. Again, yeah, I'm not sure. the, the type of guy who's been like, well, that guy's got one eye guard. I'm going to hold out to the next four by four. And I, <laughs> and I've, I've never had a buck scored. And I, I, I know, <laughs> yeah, I have some friends who've had some, some masher bucks, but based on where I'm at, the opportunities I have and, and weather and all those other conditions, I'm, I'm, right, I'm ready right, to go. Right. For sure. No, I, I, I think, um, kind of the benchmark for really trophy sick of blacktail deer here up up in alaska and this includes kodiak even like the real monster buck category starts at 100 inches 
and even a 90 inch deer is a is 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 still a really nice buck um but you know for a lot of us residents that are just mainly shooting them for meat you know Mm -hmm. we're, we're we're completely happy to just shoot the first um, mature buck that we see as long as it's not an absolutely second year um, buck that's just barely starting to grow antlers even. Um, right. As long as he's a mature buck, um, you know, pr- probably three to four years old or older, um, that most of us aren't going to pass up on that deer. No. And I know we've talked up on, on, on the show a bunch before about how good blacktail deer meat is. And I just want to reiterate, <laughs> yes. I've had a lot of dull sheep and I've had a lot of sick of blacktail deer. And, uh, I, I would have to say, I think I prefer sick of blacktail deer. They are just fantastic eating. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I guess kind of a good question on that note is, do you have a lot of fat on your August deer down there then? Uh, we have a good amount. Yeah. Um, it kind of varies too. There are some deer that I've, I, I took one deer that was just an absolute monster mm-hmm. and it, it had so much fat and it was so much bigger than my previous, like this was a really big deer until I shot that one. I thought, oh, there's a whole other category. This is a whole different tier yeah. of deer yeah. and there's probably another one on top of that, but, um, good sure. amount of fat, but also a ton of meat. And it was just the, the, the bone structure was bigger. Everything was bigger about yeah. it. And it was, yeah. uh, yeah. it just everything about it. It was just, yeah. uh, mm-hmm. just a magnum. And, um, um, yeah, so I, I've shot some bucks that way. It was pre-rut and tons and tons of, uh, of fat. And then a couple of days later got another one and there was not as much fat. So sometimes mm-hmm. they, you know, based on area, based on yeah. all kinds of different things, sometimes they yeah. start to rut a little bit sooner. So you get some that are, you know, no fat and others that have a ton of fat. So yeah, uh, yeah. just kind of a crapshoot, especially when you get towards rut. But once you get later in rut, then it tend to be pretty, pretty lean. Yeah, 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 for sure. Caribou are a lot the same way. Yeah, you, I was going to get those say, early, early caribou right. pre-rut, and, and you can get a pretty good layer of fat on there, but right. if you wait even just a couple weeks too long, and then, mm-hmm. yeah, there's hardly anything. They burn a lot of that during the rut, and they're going through a lot of energy. Yeah. But, yeah. So to uh, change gears just a hair, um, we've covered deer pretty good, but another thing you guys have down there is quite a few black bears. Um, how how much do you guys hunt those in the fall? Would you say in, in like this time of year, is your focus primarily on the deer or yeah, mostly, mostly deer. Um, I've been on a couple Alpine, uh, bear hunts, just kind of, you kind of look around and you're looking for the, that bear that's been eating those berries. Cause the Alpine bears are way better than the blueberries that are down in the bushes. Mm-hmm. Uh, just so, so awesome to, but, um, now typically it's just anytime I can get up and go out and hunt, it's going to be deer. Um, right. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you can get them down on the rivers and you can get a, you know, a pretty good sized bear, but I mean, just 15 feet of tapeworm trailing after that thing, man, right. just disgusting, <laughs> horrible thing that you don't want to deal with at all. Um, well, and that was so, going to be my, my up there was, was how's the eating of them at that time of year? Cause I know, I, I know spring bears is pretty much what I've, I've eaten primarily. And yeah. I've heard some horror stories about, about the coastal the, the bears, fall yeah. coastal bears. Yeah. 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 Well, and black bears as scavengers, you know, they're, they're not always eating the freshest of the fish. There are a lot of times they're going to be walking up and down the shores and they're taking these dead rotting fish that you could fillet with a butter knife and they're just <laughs> lapping up the flesh and it's just, it's disgusting. So if that's what you're eating, man, there's just no chance of that, that tasting at all good. And there've been yeah. a few times where we've been up top, um, looking for bears in the Alpine and thought, you know, we're actually not that far from a river. 
mm-hmm. and it doesn't take a whole lot for a bear to move and it can it may have been eating a whole bunch of fish yesterday and this is a trap so it's going to be like <laughs> rotten fish with a side of of blueberry so yeah yeah, yeah sardines and berries yeah yep. sounds sounds good <laughs> Yeah, I, I've Southeast I've, delicacy. I, well, I was going to say, I, I'm two times now I've eaten um, coastal brown bear. And uh, pretty safe to say that's the only two times I'm ever going to try it. It's, uh, yeah. it's, it's not good. It's not worth it. I mean, obviously in the survival situation, I would eat it and I would eat it happily. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, strong fishy flavor and uh, just not good. I mean, just too tough, too sinewy. Um, spring black bear is a whole different game, but, but especially up here in the interior, um, where they're not eating fish, they're they're not eating, um, that nasty rotten fish, like you were talking about. Um, and and even the meat that they do eat up here, um, is, is for the most part, um, more fresh red meat, Mm -hmm. you know, caribou and moose and things like that normal type of feed. Um, but yeah, generally, um, up here in the interior, at least in my experience, I've never had a bad black bear Mm -hmm. up here in the interior. Right, um, but but I I I know of a lot of guys down there in the Southeast Islands that, uh, and and even somewhere in um, like if you were to go to uh, like uh, out of Aldees or um, out of Homer or somewhere like in Prince William Sound area, um, a lot of those you know those are coastal bears that they're eating the same thing they're they're eating down in Southeast, and uh, just just that difference in feed and eating those rotten fish just I mean to me I wouldn't go shoot one for meat right yeah if if that was if that was a hunt I wanted to go do, I would just go do it just to get a bear out of there. Yeah. Um, just because I, I, well, number one, I love bear hunting. And number two, it's a management tool. But um, if, if I was looking for a black bear for meat quality to eat it, that's not where I would go to kill one. Well, I think we're going to go ahead and wrap this one up. We've been trying to keep these a little bit shorter. Um, and I think we've packed a lot of really great information into this one. Um, in closing, is there anything... Any closing thoughts you you would want to throw out to a, a first time deer hunter or somebody who's coming out to at least that region for the first time? Maybe they have experience with other things, but not in that area. Um, I would say dive into to podcasts. You know, it's a pitch to Alaskans too. You know, there's there's I don't begrudge people who come up here and and film videos and do podcasts and whatnot, but I think you just get a different flavor for a lot of the little things that you might not pick up in a. Mm-hmm. in an episode or a film or something like that. Again, you know, lower 48ers that come up and do as we do for a week or something like that. Good on right. them. You know, there's nothing right. at, at all wrong with that. But I think searching out Alaska podcast and there's, there's a lot more of us than, than people I think think, you know, there's mm-hmm. a lot of Alaska con- content out there and there's a lot actually done by Alaskans too. So listening to podcasts and getting a lot of things that you didn't even know to think about. Um, right. Right. I uh, didn't know to ask about. I think that would be a that would be a good thing. And knowing the difference too, that there could be some subtle differences between hunting, you know, unit two versus unit one versus unit four. So, right. um, mm-hmm. and then also those regulations. You know, um, yeah. everyone yeah. everyone's heard about Prince Wales. Everybody's heard about mm-hmm. Kodiak. But there's a lot of there's a lot of some a lot of different things that are going in there, and a lot of things that people leave out of the films because they don't want to divulge every, every single fact. So exactly. do as much research as possible to reach out to people. But in the same way, when you call a biologist, don't say, Hey, where can I hunt sheep in Alaska? You know, if you call a biologist <laughs> and say, right. Hey, you know, I'm, I'm thinking about this unit. I'm thinking about this drainage. I'm thinking about, you know, this time of year, you know, am I, am I on base here? You know, is this something that I might have a good chance? What's the population like, you know, have some, have some real things rather than just, 
if, if you want to go on like Alaska Blacktail Forum and just ask questions, you yeah. can. And there are some nice people who will who will give you some information. But I think the more information that you have, and the more you reach out to people and, and have a conversation, and say, "Hey, man, I I just want to I want to do this. I'm excited about it. This is the type of person I am. The type of hunter I am. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not just going up there. I'm going to try to make it as easy as possible." I'm, I'm just going to film this and I'm going to go back to all my buddies and share how I conquered Alaska. You know, I think if you have that humility, <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm in someone else's backyard. Um, this is someone else's spot, you know, well, no one owns the spot, but you know, I'm going to be a guest in someone else's area. Um, right. and I think that sort of attitude will be really good for getting information going forward when you reach out to people um, and acknowledge that, Hey, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a good, I'm a good person. I'm a good hunter. I'm a respectful hunter. Uh, I understand what it means to go into someone else's area uh, to hunt. So, mm-hmm. you know, I'd be willing to have any information that uh, that you can give me. Here's what I've researched so far. So I think that that goes a long way with with people uh, willing to be helpful with mm-hmm. you or for you. Absolutely. Um, absolutely. Yeah. Ad- attitude like that is everything. Honestly, it really is. Yeah. Well, Jeff, we appreciate you coming on the show and sharing your expertise with us. Um, it's been a great pleasure talking to you. And uh why don't you go ahead and let people know uh, where they can find your podcast, your uh, your written content. I know you have a couple books out, so yeah. Well, uh, really appreciate you having uh, having me on. It's uh, nice to talk to Alaskans, and again, it's amplifying the voice of Alaskans. It doesn't mean that uh, you know anybody else is is bad, but it's just fun to talk to people from different areas of the state. Mm-hmm. You know, so there's some commonalities, and sometimes there's some overlap, and it's just a lot of fun. Um, glad that you guys are are entering the realm. Have been in the realm. You're working through the, the kinks and getting after it. So it's, it's fun to see. And I think it helps all of us Alaskan podcasters kind of increase our, our, you know, it's, it's not a competition. It's this podcast or this podcast, you know, it's kind of right. all of us together right. We compliment each other. And it's a, it's great to, to be on here. I really appreciate you being, um, allowing me to be on here. Um, my book, uh, beyond the hunt is uh, available as well as my other book, uh, a miserable paradise life in Southeast Alaska. You can get those on Amazon. You can also go to uh, onstepalaska.com and you can um, order them order them there. My podcast is called uh, On Step Alaska and uh, you can get that wherever podcasts are, uh, are available. All right, guys. Well, if you have any questions about anything we talked about today, definitely reach out to us at uh, our email. It's info at thenorthernhunter.com. You can also go to thenorthernhunter.com, our website, and we have a nice contact us button there. And our social medias are at the Northern Hunter currently on either Facebook or Instagram. Um, another great way to support what we're doing, if you'd like to help us keep going, is uh, shopping from our sponsored products or mm-hmm. going to, you can find those on our website. We have a partners page there that'll mm-hmm. have links to everybody. Um, Dalton will tell you about them here in a second. And we also are going to have a shop there where you can go get yourself some nice Northern Hunter merch. And that really helped us out as well. Mm-hmm. So Dalton, why don't you tell them about the partners we got? Yeah, so currently right now we have uh, five partnerships that we're working with. Um, uh, three of those have the same discount code, um, nice, easy to remember. We have Yukon River Knives. We've talked about their knives a lot. Um, we'll be using them a lot here uh, coming up this fall hunting season. Yukon River Knives, we have the discount code The Northern Hunter, no caps, no space at checkout. And then um, also for Hammer Bullets, our newest addition to our partners that we have a discount code through so you can save money on your. Uh, on your bullets purchases. Um, we all shoot hammer bullets here and uh, they're easy to load for. They shoot well and they work well on game mm-hmm. on the terminal side. And then also uh, not to forget Stealthy Hunter with Ryan Lamper's gear shop with rifle covers and glassing pads. 
and uh, all of the stealthy nutrition supplements that we take here at the show. And uh, that discount code is also the Northern Hunter at checkout. And then uh, if you are doing any bear baiting or trapping lures or uh, or even possibly moose lures uh, that you need to shop, um, we are partnered with Batum 907. They are a local Alaska-based company that makes all of our attractants and lures that we use for bear baiting. And uh, and then also, uh, last but not least, our uh, remaining partner is Weatherby Rifles, based in Sheridan, Wyoming, um, all-American company, and uh, we're happy to be working with them as well. All right. And guys, definitely give us a review on whatever platform you're listening to us on and a rating with the stars, all the stars if you can. We'd appreciate it very much. (laughs) All right. Until next week, get out there, get after it, and good luck.